all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and they've got to get them off welfare. Hi, welcome to Cars and Comrades, your car podcast with a leftist perspective. My name is Bryant, and with me is Connor, Zach, and Brandon. Hello. Hi. We've got a couple different segments on this show that we're going to edit together in some kind of sequence that I'm not entirely sure how it'll end up, but, you know, you'll you'll find out with the... Uh, with us, you know, as we go. So, uh, <laughs> um, I think first we're going to have a little segment on Elon Musk and, uh, what kind of a dumbass he is. And that'll be coming up at six and a half minutes. Yeah. Spoiler alert. He's a stupid douchebag. And too many people <laughs> love him. So what's the spoiler? <laughs> That's true. You got me there. And then we'll have uh, our discussion on our various project cars, which will be at 34 minutes. And then uh, we're going to have an, an interview I did with my friend Scott from LF Horse Racing. 57 minutes. I know him from 24 Hours of Lemons. But we mostly talked about scooters and mopeds and two-stroke engines of all sorts. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating conversation. You know, Scott's a good storyteller. I didn't really have to give him too much direction or edit that conversation really at all. You know, it's, it's all flows pretty well. Um, at least on his end, I don't know how I did. And, uh, you know, Scott and I, we don't necessarily have the same exact political beliefs, but, uh, you know, he's a, he's a cool guy. Um, you know, was involved uh, a little bit with the Bernie campaign last well, year. We and can't uh, all be effective anarcho Stalinists. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when the revolution comes, be easy on him is what I'm saying. You know, Scott's a cool guy. And what he, part of and Stalinist he... did you not just hear? Be easy on people. <laughs> well, not you know, not everyone's caught on to the uh, to the decentralized vanguard party yet, but uh, maybe the idea will catch on. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm just saying this for any uh, Maoists that might be listening. You know, Scott is a landlord. He's got a um, a place that he's renting out, which. Um, if you're looking for a place in uh, North End of Denver, uh, I can connect you to. Yo, um, let me say something real quick. Uh, but you saying Maoist made me think of this. I saw the coolest fucking shit on a cut. Like, I don't know what kind of car it was today, but it was like debadged and had like some mild like custom paint on it. And there was like a no farmers, no food, no future sticker on the back real big. And I'm like, all right, this dude's probably some reactionary douchebag. And when I look closer, it says, uh, Google India farmer strike. Oh, nice. <laughs> there you I go. I, I got fucking pumped. I'm like, oh, I need to like hang out with this dude, but I had no idea who it was, and we turned in different directions. Yeah, so I, that guy, if you're listening, contact yeah. us. <laughs> if, if you're there and you saw a creepy-ass fucking van behind you, I live close by, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so and then after the, the interview section, we're going to talk a little bit more about scooters and mopeds and 
two-wheeled transportation in general. I'm going to try and do like a little buyer's guide for if you want to get into um, scooters or anything like that. And that will be at two hours, eight minutes. And I forget, did we have anything else? I think that's it for the content that we have. Uh, but I did want to say we we were talking a little bit uh, off mic and we're thinking of going to an every other week schedule for releasing episodes because this is a lot more work than uh, than I had thought. Um, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, you know, we got to like research the topic, you know, record it, edit it, put it out there, figure out hosting and post it on social media and all that. Plus, so, we got to make our schedules all meet. And by the way, we're in three different time zones for anyone that didn't know. Right. So, you know, and let's be real. Weather's starting to get a little bit nicer. You know. And we all drive shit boxes. We have a lot of bolts to fucking yeah. undo. And that usually involves a lot of PB Blaster. Yeah. And And we all work at least 40 hours a week. So this is not, you know, we're not making any money off of this. Apparently, sometimes I work 60. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, we'll probably go to, to every other week from now on, unless someone that's listening wants to volunteer to, uh, be a research assistant or editor for the podcast. It pays nothing. And, uh, <laughs> you'll have Casting to look for unpaid interns. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, or if a bunch of people come out of the woodwork and say, here, here's a, a bunch of money. You can quit your day jobs, which I don't think is going to happen either. So, we we can offer you an unpaid internship or give you twenty percent of our profits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think uh, let's get into whatever segment we have coming up next, and uh, we'll reconvene here in a second to uh, break it all down for you. good yeah good over here <laughs> i'm awful <laughs> i'm sorry were we su- was i supposed to not no. be so honest about no, that speak your truth man <laughs> yeah my, my life is a train wreck well uh speaking of train wrecks <laughs> connor did you want to <laughs> connor did you want to talk about uh elon musk or should we get right into our projects and, and everything. Um, you know what? If you guys want to start with uh, right off the top, um, I, I can go into some making fun of Elon Musk. I feel like that's a good way to, you know, get us started here before we're even talking about projects, just uh, get a good laugh in. So what we're referring to is uh, this past week, Elon Musk came out with uh, one, one of his other stupid fucking tunnels. Uh, this one was in Las Vegas, so it was part of the Las Vegas Convention Center, um, and they had uh, they got grifted by Elon Musk uh, and his boring company, <laughs> where he made. When you gamble in Vegas, you lose. <laughs> well, apparently, when Vegas gambles in capitalism, they lose. So that's <laughs> that's the case here. Um, so they bought into this boring company thing, which you know likely is just them trying to get attention for themselves and i'm sure that worked to some extent 
So essentially, you know, we, we've talked in the past about the boring company and basically it's a company that fe- that bills itself as innovative, but really it just makes tunnels, which we've had tunnels for, I don't know, what, 10, 20 years now, something like that. Um, so, you know, I think we're pretty good. Yeah, at let's be brutally honest. He did the same thing that all of us have done where it's like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if somebody started like a mining company and called it the boring company, <laughs> but he had the money to actually follow through on a shitty pun. Yup. Yeah. Well, so the problem is people think he's actually like smart or something. So, of course, there's all these claims about, oh, it's and they claim like, oh, it's going to move 4,400 people an hour at this convention center. And I'm like, well probably not going to be too many conventions with that many people anyway. So one, you know, it just seems outrageous. But uh, what it comes down to is they unveiled it. And even a lot of the press around it, like I found some very positive press, obviously, because anytime he sneezes, he gets positive press. Uh, But there was actually a lot of like outlets that kind of came out like, yeah, so Elon Musk's new, I, you know, new tunnel is out and it was kind of fucking lame. Um, like there was multiple headlines um, that were just like, yeah, it's just a tunnel with cars driving slowly through it. Like <laughs> there's nothing innovative here. Um, so, of course, you know, I, I'm one to like make fun of all the ones that had good press. But like, you know, here, here's here's an actual headline from, I don't know, Road and Show. Elon Musk's boring company shows off Vegas tunnel again and it looks lame. <laughs> Um, here, here's another one. Business Insider watched Tesla's slowly move through Elon Musk's new boring company tunnel under Las Vegas. Oh, here we go. Elon Musk's public transit, quote unquote, is in Las Vegas, still just humans driving cars slowly in a tunnel. <laughs> so a lot of people, a lot of the press was a little bit, um, was a little bit harsh on him, rightly so, because they're all these big claims about his projects and they're like, dude, this is cars driving 15 miles per hour through a fucking tunnel, like in a convention center. So like not a city, not anything. It's just Tesla's driving through tunnels. Now um, I'm hoping the listeners, I can drive slowly through a tunnel on my own. I don't need Elon Musk's help. uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's pretty incredible. Now, I'm hoping our listeners may have already seen this, but if not, we'll, we'll definitely put a video in the link or in the show notes. But um, essentially, it's like it looks like an Apple store underground. All the walls are white. So everyone thinks that naturally means it's innovative because the walls are white. Um, the tunnel is pretty small. Um, so it's like this. Uh, there's like a road in a tunnel and it's I think they said it's about 14 feet in diameter. Um, and essentially in terms of like where the actual road is, you've got what looks like maybe six inches on each side of the tires, um, where the driver can't fuck up. Like you can't, you cannot deviate at all, or you're going to crash in a single file tunnel, uh, which will cause obviously tons and tons of problems. No, I see no problem here. This, this all sounds good. Well, and, and, and on top of it, so it's like the tunnel itself is white. Okay, it's very claustrophobic, like just you're like, I can't believe anyone thought this was a good idea. And at some point, they're like, yeah, they'll be autonomously driven. So, okay, it'll just be a headache and a fucking tube at that point. But for now, they're hiring drivers to do this. So human error is a big problem. And I don't know, like if anyone's ever driven like 
where you're on a, a highway that's undergoing construction, they put the wall like two inches from the white line. And that feeling you get driving right next to it when you're not used to driving next to a wall like that. Now imagine that on both sides and you're in a white tunnel. <laughs> well, Connor, you and I have both done like long haul tr- truck driving before. So like we're both pretty aware how how effective humans are at being very alert when there's absolutely no stimulation for like hours and hours on end. So this, this all should work out perfectly. It should work out perfectly because again, the drivers, I'm, there's no limitations. They can drink as many monsters as they would like or Red Bulls or what have you. They can have caffeine pills and, and you know, that should prevent any crashes in this dangerous, dangerous tube on top of it. So they've got these people who are going to be expected to drive, I mean, let's be serious, minimum eight hours in these fucking tubes running the same goddamn route around like uh, a little convention center. So it's like a total of like one mile or something. Yo, we discussed this. Th- these are going to be fucking gig workers that are going to be doing 14 hour days to pay the bills. You There's know, it's not going to be any eight hour bullshit in this t- Ex- fucking tunnel. Exactly. And so. It's a white tunnel and they put this like these lights in there. So it's like green and blue and purple. And and you're like, yo, dude, this is going to scramble people's fucking brains driving through this. It's going to be terrifying. Um, Human error is, you know, surely going to play a part in this at some point because it is very difficult to stay alert through that. They won't know what time of day it is. It's just it's a it's a bad idea for a lot of reasons. And at the end of the day. This big innovation is nothing more than cars driving in tunnels. And that's okay, not I got genius. This, this is the next game in Las Vegas. <laughs> Every hundredth driver gets dosed with acid. <laughs> and, and then everybody just puts money on what happens. Spoiler alert, it's always a crash. <laughs> <laughs> Except only the house gets to vote on that. You, yeah. have, you have to bet on the other possibility. This is actually just going to be how the casino owners are gambling. <laughs> um, I actually, so I did. I do their normal kind of gambling, which is with human life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did watch one video that like they, they were riding in the car or whatever. And they're like, oh, wow. You know, if you, if you get off course or whatever, will you just do a barrel roll? And I was like, that's not funny. And that won't happen. Like people will die. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, he he was probably just referencing the old school meme of do a barrel roll because he has no fucking respect for <laughs> workers' rights or human life. Uh, yeah, and and so it, it so it played music in there. So there's like this video comes out and it's oh there's music and lights and everyone's like oh it's so futuristic and it's like no it's they just put lights in here, dude. Like how are people so fucking easily convinced? Um, but naturally we know how this goes. And, uh, of course they're already in talks about doing a loop system throughout all of Las Vegas because they're insane. And for, you know, I, I'm sure the early systems, by the way, will work to some extent before we have the problem of induced demand and they get overcrowded. Um, but for a while they're going to work. And I think one of the big things that a lot of people are not understanding what the boring company really ultimately is because making tunnels doesn't solve the traffic problem. What will actually probably improve traffic a lot is autonomous 
self-driving cars because they don't have to stop. They know they're not going to, in theory, as the technology gets better, they won't crash into cop cars. So, although it's kind of funny when they do, you know, they won't, they theoretically won't crash. They won't have to interfere with each other and they can all maintain a perfect following distance, reducing traffic. Everyone has known that that was supposed to be the promise of autonomous vehicles forever. But Elon Musk came up with the idea to just like, oh, we'll build these outrageously expensive tunnels to go with that, which also rely ultimately on autonomous driving technology. But like, it's just a way for him to make extra money for solving the same problem. So like if the autonomous driving actually alleviates traffic, but he finds two expensive solutions to it, one of which is just bullshit, he makes money on the bullshit. And that's what's going on here. So like, you know, people are thinking, oh, see, he's alleviating traffic this way. And it's like, no, we could do all. None of that requires a tunnel like autonomous driving works on the surface and it wouldn't require digging through the fucking planet like uh, autonomous driving works on the surface, unlike even Elon Musk's ideas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's just it's a lot of money to spend. And, you know, of course, they're making all these ridiculous claims about, oh, it costs a bajillion dollars to make a subway tunnel. But our tunnel is somehow made cheaper. You're like, that's not how that works. Plus, nowadays, we're not making as many tunnels with better technology and what. So for a lot of reasons, the the claims he makes and, you know, people make about his company on his behalf are mostly inflated bullshit. Uh, the other thing, and I, this is what I suspect. So this is pure speculation uh, at this point, but I feel like I feel like I got pretty good reason to believe it. Um, chances are whatever these cost on paper is probably less than what they actually cost. Um, because for a while they're building publicity. So the boring company can probably operate at a loss for quite a while. Um, and they can be financed by Elon Musk. Like this cost, this whole project costs $53 million on paper, but because Elon Musk has literally over a hundred billion dollars for like 1% of his wealth, he could finance, a $200 million tunnel project, right? But then you do all the math and the intermediate transactions like, you know, oh, you kind of obfuscate how people are getting paid and what you're contracting out. No, this nets out this way. And before you know it, this $200 million project looks like it costs 53 million on paper. And then you get to do it again. And it's the same concept as why they... You know, back in the day, they sold milk at the grocery store at a loss. Same thing's probably happening here. So, you know, not not, not to derail this topic onto the topic of shitty, famous billionaires. Yeah. You know that that's how Amazon functioned for a long time, yep. if not still, right? It, yep, exactly. So it uh, looks they made all of their money off of Amazon Web Services, and then a lot of products on Amazon were sold at a loss just so that they could monopolize. Yeah, the they did. I know they did that a lot. With um, exactly, there was a particular business that sold uh, like diapers and other supplies for babies, and uh, they they basically drove this business out uh, out of business, or at least until they could buy them up, uh, just by you know selling diapers at a loss. And then, you know, jacked up the prices again once they, uh, I forget if they bought them out or just drove them out of business or what. But uh, yeah, that's kind of their whole, I, and a lot of the tech sector these days is just operate at a loss for years until you can either get bought out or, um, 
become a monopoly basically you know like what yeah once once you've run out all the competition then you can raise your prices and right right yep so like right now this is like oh an alternative to public transport and whatever they're going to be i guarantee it running at a loss building these things way cheaper way cheaper and on paper people are gonna be like oh my god it's so much less expensive than building a subway tunnel or whatever the fuck they're going to come up with and then later on 20 30 years from now you're going to be watching the costs that have just inflated beyond belief, but the, the narrative will already be out there that this is the cheapest way to do it. So right now, he's building the narrative. I can't wait to see the numbers when it's like, for only half the price of a subway, we can transport 1% of as many people. <laughs> yep. And people are bad. Human beings are, are bad at understanding large numbers, which is why a lot of this grifting kind of shit works. Like, we're our brains just cannot comprehend the difference between a million, a billion and a trillion. Like it just your brain can't really do it. Not effectively. And so a lot of this stuff, they it's like a short change con, right? That, you know, you, you could that a small time con person could run. It's the same thing, just on a bigger level. And that's what's happening right now. So, like, you know, it, it was cool to see some of the outlets just like, yo, this is a stupid fucking it's a tunnel. Like it wasn't a big deal. So, like, for the first time, there was a little bit of criticism of Elon Musk's shit. I suppose that in the Cybertruck. But, like, you know, there's still a lot of expansion here. Like, the city of Las Vegas now wants a whole loop or whatever. And Yeah, whatever happened with this Cybertruck? Like, I haven't heard shit about that monstrosity in a fucking while. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to have to look into it. But it's got to come around again at some point, right? Like, these, it's... Technically, he sold a whole bunch of them already, even though there's none that exist, to my knowledge. Yo, he sold a bunch already? Yeah, they were having pre-sales and stuff. Yeah, it was... Oh. Yeah, it was... So... Yeah. I hope that, I hope that what we learned from th- that truck is what an effective skateboard ramp it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm calling for the skateboarders and BMXers of the world to fucking take advantage of the <laughs> That would be pretty sick to see. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing that always puts the the bigger numbers in perspective for me um, is a million seconds is about 11 days and a billion seconds is about 31 and a half years. Yep. So that's kind of the difference in scale that we're dealing with. Dude, I'm a fucking machinist. I only understand numbers between zero and one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think they were talking about this uh, this project on Well, There's Your Problem podcast. Uh, and they probably covered it better than us because at least one of them has an engineering degree. At least all three of them are smarter than any one of us. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, one of the things they pointed out is like none of this is um, compl- uh, compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Like there's no way you could get someone in a... Uh, wheelchair into one of these Teslas and get them down the tunnel or whatever. Uh, it's just not going to happen, really. Hey, you know, as a side note, as as we develop as a podcast, I think we're going to need to start like beefing with other podcasts. <laughs> and uh, Liam, if you're listening, I, I think you'd be fun to have a beef with. So you know, g- g- give me a shout out. <laughs> well, I'm on, I'm on the other side of Pennsylvania. You know, we'll hash it out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just uh, we'll we'll beef with um, I don't know who's the most famous. What's the biggest podcast? Chapo. Just to 
Yeah, we'll just beef with Chapo for no reason, and they won't notice it. Uh, I'll all. beef with it's literally like... every podcast, man. <laughs> I'm gonna be real honest. Let's do though. it. I, I don't know if I want to beef with. I don't know if I want to beef with uh, Chapo. That that that's probably gonna end bad for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that chop that Chapo to Fash pipeline's rough. <laughs> we'll, we'll beef with Chapo and a bunch of fucking neo Nazis will start showing up at the house. <laughs> I don't. I don't like having beefs for real reasons. I just like having like fake beefs with people, and that when they don't understand what's going on. Yeah, that's that's why I specifically called out Liam from Well, there's your problem because he's like he seems like a cool dude, but he also seems like he'd be real fun to argue with. <laughs> Yeah, nothing in particular against him. Just, you know, fuck you. Yeah, I used to live in Philly, so I 100% understand the attitude of fuck you for existing. And I'm into it. I miss it. I, yeah. I long for it. So <laughs> what, were the, what the fuck were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's really all I had for Elon Musk's stupid tunnel thing. But yeah, it's Elon Musk. He came up with another stupid idea and uh, people are falling for it. So if you're done uh, shitting on Elon Musk's tunnel idea, but you want to keep shitting on Elon Musk, I did see another headline today. Well, I'd at least like to hear the headline. Uh, it was it was something about how Elon Musk is calling for people to dis- to to be very careful to develop AI responsibly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Because, because AI could be very dangerous if developed irresponsibly as demonstrated by the documentary Terminator 2. Um, (laughs) As opposed to developing capitalism uh, responsibly, you know, he's on top of that. I I think whether you're developing AI responsibly or capitalism responsibly, they both end in Terminator 2. Yeah. Yeah, Cyberdyne was a public company, wasn't it? I, I don't know. But was like, it was it called Cyberdyne? Isn't that the? Yeah, no, that was the company. I'm, it just made me think about the fact that there was there was some like big like satellite company or something like a, maybe a project for for somebody that they actually decided to name Skynet. Oh yeah, I think uh, it was like a British thing or some other country. Maybe I don't know. Because like th- exactly what you do when you meet God is spit in his face, like. Yes. Now you know what? I don't like using that comparison because that does seem like a good plan. As to where the the Skynet thing seems like a bad plan, I don't know. But yeah, Elon Musk says develop AI responsibly when every other reasonable person says maybe just don't at all. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, I just looked it up. There's like three different airlines in Eastern Europe called Skynet, or no, huh. one of them's Ireland, and then. A domestic airmail network run by the Royal Mail uh, of the UK, I guess. Yeah, and then another uh, Japanese airline used to be called Skynet Asia. Oh, and a um, a TV broadcasting uh, company in Myanmar. Uh, yeah, but there's also something that seems to be called Skynet Drone Defense, Maverick Drone Systems. Oh, well, that sounds yeah, that terrifying. Sounds, yeah, that Skynet sounds anti-drone shells. Do they live up to the hype? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it's uh, okay. Skynet is a family of military communication satellites. Oh, that's yeah, that's scary. Perfect. So like, yeah, a bunch of things thought that it'd be funny to call themselves Skynet or whatever. And one of them was the U.S. military. I mean, it is a cool sounding name, but. Yeah, I'm know. sure that's why they put it in Terminator 2. 
I guess I can't call my my company uh, Omni Consumer Products. Is that off off limit now? Huh? I I don't know the reference. Oh, that's a um, uh, Robocop. I, okay, yeah. Mm. No, it was familiar, but I couldn't pin it. Uh, there you go. No, go for it. Fuck it. <laughs> it's just you have to make a product that kills people irrationally, right? Or in the modern world, I think that's just called a product. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Real quick, um, I just wanted to to finish up this Elon Musk story. I wanted to point out two more things. Apparently, I'm looking now. The uh, Elon Musk is. We were talking before about how he wanted to build tunnels in Miami. Um, so somehow. He wants to build a two-mile tunnel underneath uh, Miami, right? And apparently, he's quoting $30 million, which is almost half what this one-mile tunnel in Las Vegas cost. Hmm. I don't know how he's going to uh, square that circle, but uh, again, I've been assured he's a genius, so... Well, uh, they're going to save money by, instead of using cars, uh, since everything in Miami in terms of a tunnel will be under sea level. They're just going to use Tesla brand boats. <laughs> yeah. It, like actually they're just building a $30 million log jam. Ride. <laughs> or like electric fan boats. Yeah. <laughs> that actually sounds kind of fun. My favorite part of this is on the Tesla branded log jam ride. There's just going to be so many gators cause it's Florida. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was that. And then I I actually wanted to read this headline because I think this might be the best headline I've seen on this stupid tunnel. And I feel like it's a good way to just close out this segment. From Jalopnik, move over, Kino. Elon Musk's dumb tes- Tesla tunnel, now the lamest thing in Las Vegas. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you, Musk. I feel like that's just a good way to close it out because uh, that that encapsulates the whole story right there. Yo, just so we can like contextualize this a little bit, a quick Google search tells me that the median price for one mile of subway is eight hundred million dollars. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, which I do get is a lot of money, but like if you get into the actual logistics of building underneath existing city, it's an engineering feat. So, so Musk is saying that he's gonna build how many miles in Miami? Two. Okay, so. That's why I'm something's wrong with with all this math. There's something wrong with Elon <laughs> Musk's math, and there's something wrong with that subway tunnel math. Because I'm I've seen I've seen some estimates like oh it costs a billion per mile, and I'm like no it doesn't. I, I don't I don't give a shit. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Sorry. Well, again, I, I read that as 800 million being the median price. It says the range is between 600 and two and a half billion per mile. Yeah. Um. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna say um that's bullshit. I'm gonna go ahead. No, and- I I don't think it is, man. Um, specifically because it depends on the area. Like imagine how much it would cost to build a mile of subway line from scratch underneath like Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's expensive. Like I'm not saying that it's not, but uh, in the hundreds of millions seems excessive to me because I just, I don't think they, they've already spent hundreds of billions doing it. Like if we, if we looked at subway systems around the country, you know, in, in just a few major cities, you'd be looking at over, you know, several, you know, dozen trillions of dollars. Well, but it's it's also sort of a payment plan thing, man. You, you yeah. often have to build like a, a large infrastructure starting out, but then you expand on it over time. 
And also, like, I did cite the most expensive place that I could possibly think of to build, like, Subway, at least yeah. in the U.S. It's it's going to vary, but yeah, I, I would I would genuinely be surprised if you could build a mile of Subway for less than a couple of hundred million dollars. Yeah, perhaps. I and don't even know. Even the low end of what I'm reading is still saying six hundred million. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember when when Musk was first talk, talking about his uh, Hyperloop idea thing. Uh, someone in my family is a civil engineer and actually knows about that kind of stuff and. He said, basically, tunneling at all, any kind of underground is going to be astronomically more expensive than building roads on the surface. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you got to deal with, like, you know, utilities, um, you know, pipes getting in the way or like building foundations or whatever. So like and and just the whole tunnel boring operation is expensive. And I guess that's like I know. Musk wanted to make that cheaper with the boring company with what I, I honestly don't know what they're doing. That's, that's supposed to be that much cheaper, but supposedly it's, you know, supposed to revolutionize the tunnel boring industry, which has been pretty mature for like, I don't know, 40, 50 years or something that hasn't really changed that much. Yeah. Bu- building tunnels like subway tunnels in major cities is prohibitively expensive enough that like globally, I know there have been several, major cities and even like where i live there have been they scrapped ideas for subways and built like bus lanes throughout the city that were bus only like because it was so 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 much cheaper to build an above ground road that just only buses could use right Hmm, yeah like is it as efficient as a train no but you know it probably like comes out in the wash after that like you save several hundred million dollars in construction fees yeah definitely well do we want to move on to uh projects or uh was there something else i think it's i think it's project time all right um, i hope you all for having to listen to what i'm about to say <laughs> <laughs> well yeah okay we're if yeah if we're going alphabetical go ahead brandon oh that was quick if you're yeah. ready so, so uh, as as I, you know, we haven't recorded in a couple of weeks here. So um, in my normal fashion of breaking and fixing things on a fucking weekly basis, as we all know, I, I routinely have been making progress on my cutlass. Well, that changed drastically uh, as I was driving it down the interstate and it suddenly shut off uh, completely. Engine, electric, lights, everything. And I still don't know why. I think something major grounded out. The one other time this happened, it fried every electrical component in my car. Like, it burst bulbs, it blew fuses, it fried my radio, it f- fried the, the module in my HEI. <laughs> it, it Basically, I replaced everything but the wires at this point. Um, except at this point, I have to replace the wires because I have no <laughs> fucking clue where it's grounding out at. So that has, I haven't touched that in two weeks because I'm kind of just disgusted with it. Like, and anybody who like is into a shit box knows the, that level of PTSD you get when you break down for the sixth time in your car. And that, that's where I'm at with that right now. When that broke down, my van was also broken down because I blew a brake line. Uh, so I had to fix that. I did my van's back on the road. It's actually running really good. I drove it like 1500 miles last week and only had like six different problems, but they were all things that like tightening up a few bolts could do. 
in, okay, in genuinely good and awesome news, and it's literally been like the only light in my last like fucking two weeks of life, is I went out to, to my buddy's house where my pro street van is being stored, and we made uh, a fuck ton of progress on it. Um, nice. In the That's sense good. that, well, because like, so we started digging in and it's been sitting in his yard, in his backyard for like years. And this was the first time we were like, okay, let's, let's just really dig in and see what, what this is. And so we started ripping out sheet metal that the other, that the previous owner had, had put in and found some of the, the absolute jankiest fabrication work I've, I've like the way they had it built. If I probably put more than 400 horsepower to the back wheels, I would have bent the frame the way they had it made. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> like I would have to draw a diagram, but like the rear frame section and uh, stock frame section didn't line up by a solid two inches. And it was just a piece of quarter inch plate steel that they were both welded to. So there was no like structural rigidity at all. Effectively, what was holding it together was a quarter inch of plate steel. <laughs> wow. Um, and we found where for some reasons... Uh, the we're back where the wheel tubs are, like all of the area over that. In some places, the layers of sheet metal were three thick. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, um, in this weird instance, progress was just cutting out everything. I found out that they actually only installed the wheel tubs by fiberglassing them in. So we removed all the extra sheet metal, um, broke free a lot of the uh, uh, stuff that wasn't going to be structural. Like we had to weld in braces and reinforcements so that the body wouldn't like buckle or anything as we were separating like the front and back halves of the frame, which that was mostly precautionary. And then we just, I welded in a, a, a two by three inch uh, rectangular tube cross member to actually mount the rear frame section to mount, uh, welded that to the front frame section. And we got just shy of the point where we're going to do some pie cuts in the rear frame section to raise it up instead of trying to like come up with some weird system to connect two things that are at like a six inch height differential. Hmm. Got, you know, got, got, got that far. Like it probably doesn't really sound like much, but it was the first genuine progress that's been made in the van in a long time. And we have a better idea of actually what we're working with. I'm going to go back out next month and we're going to finish putting the frame together and then uh, weld in all the brackets. I'm, I'm going to, since we're doing all this, I've decided to not run ladder bars as it was originally set up for. We're going to weld in brackets to run four link, like probably like a triangulated four link. So that'll be, it'll be a much better end result. And we are no longer just like trying to come up with weird solutions to fix somebody else's like janky fabrication work. We're just cutting it all out and, and redoing it. Uh, and then it'll be a roller. We probably have about 12 or 15 more hours worth of work to do on it. And it'll be it'll be rolling instead of just sitting on a bunch of old tires in his backyard. Yeah, that's um, nice. Yeah, it's, it is it's a huge amount of progress because that's when we can actually start putting the drivetrain in. So uh, over overcoming a lot of big hurdles on that. Still been working on my buddy's uh, Volkswagen bus. And that was like bodywork, or what were you doing on that? Uh, sh yeah, sheet metal stuff. Uh, he had a lot of the the like stuff cut up and ready to weld in, so he's just been having me come over and, and weld stuff together. We are getting to a point in the back roof portion where we're gonna have to like fabricate a little bit of stuff because some like of the inner structural parts are rotted. 
Gotcha. But we'll we'll figure. He's got he's got like a bunch of panels from other vans, and I guess they repop a lot of the sheet metal for that stuff. So he's got a lot of it to weld in. It's just a matter of doing it. And he's like a chill dude to hang out with. So I've been having a good time helping with that. I know I'm leaving something out, but I can't fucking remember what it is. So I guess I guess that's me. I broke everything, fixed some of it, and broke some more of it again. Yep. Entropy's right. a bitch. Sounds about right. Oh, I fixed a bunch of random rattles on my daily van, and it now actually runs the quietest it's ever been. Yeah. It's really, I, it's really nice. I got to do that on my MR2 one of these days. That thing, like, if I ever, one of my ideas is to convert it to electric, and if I ever did, then you would just hear all the the door panels and everything just rattling around, but I don't know. Yeah, fortunately, I have headers, so I, yeah. I <laughs> noises have to be really loud for me to be able to hear them. Yeah, I I suspect that when I had the transmission out a couple years ago with that thing, I um, tweaked the uh, what it, what's it called flex joint in the exhaust, and it's leaking, but it's behind me the engine, so who cares? You know, it's just a tiny bit louder is all. It still runs. Oh, fine, that but... sucks. Because if you get an exhaust leak that's coming right into the cab, you really only care about it for the first ten or fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I had that with my Sabaru. I think I think I talked about that on the show, but yeah, I've got a I've got a carbon monoxide detector in the center console just in case. Yeah, you guys have already heard my carbon monoxide horror story for the week, so Yeah. Um well, Brandon, I've got an idea for your uh your cutlass is just to Get Climb rid it, of push it off a cliff. Yeah, I'm, I'm considering it. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to remove all the electronics from it, uh, get like swap a, a mechanical diesel engine in there. Um, Dude, it's a 1967. There are no like electrical components. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and then and then you got to convert all the lights to acetylene lamps instead of uh, electrical. Like that's what it would actually take to eliminate. I like. <laughs> Oh, oh, and uh, a crank start instead of a battery and a starter. Well, the engine in it is kind of dog shit, so it's pretty low compression. That could probably work. Yeah, I'll just I'll convert my four hundred three Olds motor to kickstart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, was that everything you had, Brandon? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um. So much well, of what I, I just described happened in one day. So maybe it just felt like more. Yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't really done anything with uh, any of my cars, but I did find out that my uh, you can't put a short shifter on my bicycle. Hmm. I I got the wrong shifter for uh, for the the derailleur that I have, and it was you know engaging maybe five out of seven gears or something like that. So. I took it to the bike shop uh, yesterday or Friday, maybe. No, I, I, I actually do have a similar issue with my Cutlass. Yeah? Yeah. How so? <laughs> um, I have the wrong linkages to the transmission because I had to put a like, later transmission on it. So I can shift it into drive, but I can't shift it into first or second. Yeah, I mean, you don't really need to go up hills or anything. It's not like you live in Pittsburgh or something. I mean, my engine makes like 350 pound feet of torque, so I don't really have to worry about that. Oh, I left out I left out the, the cherry on top, actually. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. No, go um, for it. 
I, I was, I was walk, I was helping a friend with something and it was like, I hadn't really fucked with the cutlass for about a week at this point. And I walked by it and was like, what's all that fluid on the ground? Oh, oh that's my transmission fluid. <laughs> so was I, it a, was it one of those leaks where you can top it off or is it like just pouring out? Dude, I have a whole new drivetrain for that car. I think this thing's going into the shop soon to just get rewired and a whole new everything. Yeah. I'm so tired of fucking with this dog shit transmission. There was, um, I think I sent you the link. There's this guy on YouTube who, uh, put a twin turbo LS motor in his cutlass. That was pretty cool. Uh, it looked pretty janky otherwise and not very safe. Like he didn't really have any kind of sheet metal in between the fuel cell and the passenger compartment, uh, and no roll cage or anything, even though it was like built to go tens or something. So Dude, if you've uh, got a twin turbo LS, if depending on how that's built, that that'll definitely get lower than tens. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that that's a setup where you easy make twelve hundred horsepower. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what he's going for exactly. He said it was mas- both mostly made with like eBay and Amazon components, but I don't know. Well, that just means it'll go twelve hundred horsepower and then explode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's all I had was my my bike. I I took it to the bike shop the other day and they're like, oh, yeah, you want this shifter, not that one and ordered it. And it was only like twenty five bucks or something. So I think Connor, uh, I think you're next. Uh, Yeah, that sounds right. You know, I didn't I didn't do too much, uh, you know, past week or two. Um, Again, car still at the shop. So uh, turns out it's taken a while, (laughs) which whatever. It's currently right now kind of a good thing that it's taken a while because the conversation at my work has kind of finally started to about coming back to the office and you know we essentially our company was recently bought out by some fucking asshole who's definitely gonna bleed us dry and whatever so that sucks um capitalism a but this asshole has had his workers back in the office um since like I think they said September or something. So they didn't really give too much of a shit about COVID and they want to bring people back already. Um, and they're, they're just like, Oh, work is better when it's done in the office. Um, and it's, so they're, they're wanting people to come back, but I sent a message to my boss. I said, Hey, look, man, my car is in the shop for a while, so I'm not going to have reliable transportation for probably a couple months at least. So, you know, I'll keep you posted, but uh, I'm probably not coming back to the office for a little bit and there's not much you can do about it. So uh, it's working out in my favor right now because I don't want to go back to the office. In fact, if I can have another job before that happens, that would be great. So kind of kind of milking that for what it's worth right now. So still in the shop. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it on the uh, last recording or not. So if I'm repeating something, sorry. Um, but they did crack it open and, uh, the, uh, shop that, you know, took it apart, did say that, uh, everything's looking really good in there. So, you know, it's not like it's not tinged, you know, orange and brown from like fucked up oil. It's the cylinder walls are good. Um, they're not like rubbed smooth or anything. So, uh, looks like, you know, I mean, it was about 160,000 miles and there was a lot of abuse in there, but from what it sounds like the engine held up really, really well to it. So 
it sounds like, you know, everything I did to maintain it um, was pretty effective. So, you know, I was glad to hear that. Nice. Yeah. So. So you actively looking for a new job or. Um, I'm, I've been wanting to get into a different industry for a long time. Um, and then I've, especially with COVID, I was just kind of content with, you know, well, I'm just working from home, whatever I got, I've become incredibly bored with the work, but, um, you know, I have been for a while. I'm trying to get into a different industry that I think, you know, pays better and is just generally a little bit more interesting. Um, so I've been working on that for years. Um, for a lot of bullshit reasons, I ended up not getting in, you know, a few years back when I was trying to get out of trucking. So like I tried and I was almost hired and then blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a tough industry to get into. And like, even if you know someone, which I do. Um, so for anyone wondering, I am leveraging the fuck out of the fact that I know someone in the industry. So, you know, I've been trying to do that. Then I accepted this job. And for a while I was trying to get switch industries for a while, but like, the way I'm trying to do it is I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to like jump in and take a huge pay cut. So like if I can, I'd like to find like a part-time gig where I can learn shit, you know, make some extra cash and then at least have some experience. But yeah, dude, just do it for the exposure. Yeah. Well, not <laughs> well, at least for paid exposure, but yeah, that's essentially what I was trying to do. Um, and that's really difficult. So anyway, I've been trying to get out for a while. I'm a little more motivated to do it now is really what it comes down to. And, you know, I'm in the process of like, okay, let's go through the resume. Let's update my references. Let's, you know, go through and coming up with a list of like all my quote unquote accomplishments at the company. And like, so I know how to interview and be like, yeah, I did this, this and that. And it was really effective and blah, blah, blah. So kind of doing a lot of that, uh, which, you know, takes some time to get back into the swing of, of the job search. So, that's happening but you know for right now I, i'm it's it's weird because i'm like in this spot where it's like well you know um it could get complicated if i'm like interviewing at places and it's like well i don't really have a running car or i suppose i could use the camaro if uh if, if i'm able to get that to pass emissions or something but you know that's a whole other thing so i don't know i can teach you my trick to get by emissions but it's sketchy um i mean <laughs> I I'd, I would definitely take it, except I, I kind of want the part of it passing is the like consignment places where I want to fucking sell it. They're like, yeah, get this oh, engine right. light off. And it's like, yeah, fuck. <laughs> you know? So it's like, all right, I'll fix it right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't fix a check engine light. I can. I my my sole recommendation was going to be just don't get it inspected, but make sure that you remove all the stickers from the windshield <laughs> so they can't tell it's expired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I could probably, I, I really could probably get away with that for a while, but the whole thing is I, I want to get that car sold cause I don't know, it deserves a better home than me. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. Also, I did, uh, kind of on an, another note, um, I finally switched insurance companies. So I found an insurance company that's willing to give me like a stated value policy. So like my car is worth whatever it is on paper, which is significantly less than it's going to be worth after like this huge rebuild and everything. Um, so I found uh, like progressive has, you know, a, a, the ability to give me insurance that matches like what's into the car a little bit better. Um, huh. I just have to go find a place to go get the car appraised at some point. Like, cause 
they would have an expert, you know, whatever their appraisal come out and do an appraisal if there was like a claim or something, but like I should have an appraisal before that. So honestly, what you're doing right now is a really solid first step towards insurance fraud. <laughs> Look, let's, uh, let's like, not... I'm not saying you're going to do that, but if you ever get in a bind, I'm just saying it's look there, there are times that I was like, boy, if I insure, you know, I'm like this Camaro's insured for what I want to sell it for. I don't really want to go through all the bullshit of selling it, but dude, all joking aside, no wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. I would genuinely never encourage you to like destroy your car just to no. collect the insurance money. No, especially if you're in you it. Need oh to my be somewhere God. So you have an alibi. You have a friend do that shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they talked about that on uh street fight radio once. Uh, I, I want to say it was Brian knew someone who had, set their car on fire for the insurance money and got away with it. But then and they did it again. Did the, they did the exact same thing again, like five years later and got caught. Dude, if people, st- if people saw the shit that I drive, they would be like, I- I- we don't think it was fraud. We're surprised it didn't happen sooner. <laughs> Yo, when my cutlass broke down, going down the road, sparks were literally flying out of the hood from the battery because it was grounding out so hard. Dude, the cables were burning me to the touch to try and get them off the battery. Oh my god. Yeah, that seems bad. Yeah, I'm solely thankful that my battery didn't literally explode in my face. <laughs> yeah, shoot. Well, I'm struggling, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's all I got on my end, too. Um, you know, insurance and the engine looks good. So, it's pretty much where I'm at. Yeah. Nice. So I don't know, well, uh, just for any listeners, like you can do it because I this was a big pain in my ass when I was looking for insurance. I'm like, yo, I'm putting a lot more money into this car than it's worth on paper. And I'm like, Ooh. and no one wants to give me like proper insurance for it. So, you know, it is possible. But I did have to go through like four or five separate fucking insurance companies like this has been a real project for me. So I'm glad I I have better insurance, which by the way, it's I'm saving a bunch of money too on top of it because that's how insurance works for some reason. All right. You heard it here first, folks. If you want to commit insurance fraud, progressive is a good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Zach, um, I know you uh, talked a little bit about your, your Audi, but I didn't, I don't know if I heard the full story of what's going on with that. Yeah, I think you and I talked about it a little bit um, on the last episode. I was saying that it was uh, it was pretty much done and ready to be sold, um, but that's uh, that's not the case. I, I was wrong. Uh, I took it to get cleaned up. I took it to a car wash near my house to wash it and detail it and get some nice pictures and everything. And by the time I made it back home, the engine was just clattering so loud. And I... Uh, I did a little research into it and kind of listened around to the engine and, uh, you know, stuck a socket extension on some spots to see if I could tell where the rattle was coming from. And the best that I can determine, it's just a a mechanical cam adjuster, uh, which is not too bad. It's a lot of work, but it's not that big of a deal. Uh, I did have to pull the transmission out of it yesterday, though. So that was... 
that was fun. I've done that like four times now on that car. So I'm getting pretty good <laughs> at it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not too bad. Should be able to get that cam adjuster out next weekend, probably. And then uh, it just needs to be rebuilt. Just some O-rings and a spring. And then it should be good to go. But I've said that before. So we'll see. <laughs> I say that every other week. <laughs> yeah. I'm Every time I finish something on this car i'm like all right that should be it and then i start it and drive it and it's not that's not it it's happened like four or five times but hey you know i'm eliminating things eventually i'll just have all new parts on the entire car because i've just eliminated every problem you're doing the grandfather <laughs> hammer thing on on your fucking yeah. car it's exactly what i'm doing like the the boat what's that yeah the that? audi of theseus Yes, the Audi of Theseus. Eventually, it'll just be a brand new car. Probably not cosmetically, though, because I'm not going to fucking spend $700 on an unpainted bumper for that stupid thing. Oh, nor should you. But, yeah. But um, mechanically, you know, maybe I'll just have a brand new car under the hood, eventually. <laughs> Hey, it's Bryant, and I'm talking with my friend Scott here today, who I met through the 24 Hours of Lemons, but is uh, much more than that, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. I, I know you're a big scooter guy. You're into motorcycles and small motorized vehicles of all varieties um i'm into antiquated forms of all sorts of transportation <laughs> a man after my own heart so <laughs> i'm sure we have plenty to talk about here yeah so i guess right off the bat how did you get into cars and uh scooters and the whole the whole thing well, I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and that's uh, only about a half hour from Detroit. So, and my parents both grew up in Detroit. So it's kind of in the water out there. Like you can't grow up without being able to tell a car by its headlights or taillights, like name and not make and model kind of guessing headlight, you know, cars on the highway kind of thing. So you get into it. And of course, everybody's grandpa has a hot rod or, or was into cars in some way or worked at a bumper stamping factory or, or did some sort of, it took part in some way. Uh, in the uh, manufacturing of transportation. So you, you can't, unless you totally just go the way of the sandals and, and, and divorce yourself from, from motorized transportation, you can't come up in Michigan without getting the bug in some way or another. And mine was in kind of a antisocial fashion. We came up getting excited about mopeds and scooters and, and Vespas and Lambrettas and that kind of stuff, which in Michigan does not make any sense at all. Like all the roads are straight and long and right. you kind of need freeway speeds in order to just get down them. Um, but that made, uh, I mean, we kind of came up in a, a hippie countercultural town there. So it sort of made sense to us that we, I mean, maybe, I don't know what, around 17, we probably watched Quadrophenia and decided that was it. We we're all going to get into that instead. Um, so that's where it started. And we started, uh, my mechanical knowledge and prowess started in a small engine repair and diagnosis class at the local community college. So it was uh, Dale and da uh, Dale's dad, Dale, both uh, 
uh, ran this small engine repair and diagnosis class, which was uh, mostly lawnmowers, but some dirt bikes or some scooters. We were the only Vespas and things out there. But if you were willing to work on it, it was a simple enough motor. He was happy to have you in his shop. Um, so that's kind of where I started working on stuff. We were in a weird spot in that there was not a professional outfit that would service us within our market. So you had to, if we needed help on a Vespa, we had to either ship or drive our machine to Chicago and have uh, Scooter Works of Chicago tell us how to do it. Now, that was the only professional outfit, but we had come about in a time in the 90s where there was just sort of a decline in the ska, second, third wave ska um, scooter thing that was going on. And, and so that just before we were getting excited about it, there was the uh, Ambassador Scooter Club, and they were named after the Ambassador Bridge, which goes from Detroit to Windsor. So that were uh, Windsor, uh, Ontario, skinheads and ska guys and punk rock dudes and oi boys and stuff that were into i mean they were still into scooters enough that if you i mean we weren't even old enough to buy beer but if we could find someone to buy them a 12 pack of guinness they'd sit in our driveway and tell not tell us not how to screw it up too badly <laughs> so i mean that was that in the haynes manual was our only our only hope of of making it work so um that and a few good friends and we kind of started figuring out what worked and what didn't work how you could bench tune a two-stroke get a little squeeze a little more power out of it here or there or what was too much or and then uh from there it was just fun you know we started getting them going and riding we rode our scooters from ann arbor all the way to niagara falls ontario um a couple of times we did that we'd ride them all the way out to chicago and back and then uh, we decided we were going to make a big stand. I was getting close to the end of my uh, professional, you know, my initial education, my secondary school, uh, post-secondary school. And I said, uh, my buddies and I were going to ride around the country, you know, ride around the country. So what did that mean? So for us, it was we were going to ride. There was like five or six of us that were going to leave Ann Arbor, Michigan on 200cc Vespas. And we had one van following us. So maybe two of us could break down at once. Otherwise the rest of us had to keep going or the slowest that they all ran the slowest running bike. That guy had to drive the van. So we left from Ann Arbor and rode all the way to new Orleans, stayed in new Orleans for a week, picked up four more guys, rode from new Orleans all the way to Denver, stayed here for a week. Uh, I say here cause that's where we live now. And uh, reason being is that trip is we, we met some really incredible people on the trip that uh, were happy to just buy us a beer or hear our story or thank us for coming kind of thing. And then we came back out and visited again after the trip. But I mean, we just decided pretty quickly that if we were going to go anywhere, we needed to try Denver at least for a year. Um, 20 years later, we're still here. But that, that wasn't where the tour ended. We rode another uh, couple of weeks out to San Francisco, stayed there for a week, rode up to Oregon and then rode uh, 8090 all the way back to, to Michigan. And the, the guys that came up from New Orleans rode from Michigan or from Chicago down to New Orleans again. So we did about 8,500 miles on vehicles that probably weren't designed to do that many miles in their entire ownership, like <laughs> brand new out of the box sort of thing. So um, that was super fun. And um, once we got out here, we started meeting people that were into either autocross or rallycross or dirt racing or quads or, or uh, rock crawlers. My initial mechanic was a rock crawler guy. He'd give you a discount if you broke your truck while rock, like going out on trails <laughs> and stuff. Um, and then uh, eventually fell in with the lemons guys, which is how you and I met and uh, got in with Bob and his team, which was trying to get the uh, speed holes uh, Marlin together at that time. And Johnny and I jumped right in and, and did everything we could to help to get that thing track worthy. And, 
lo and behold moments before the green flag the thing actually was track worthy and, and went out and, and turned quite a few laps that weekend it was it was a good time and uh geez what was that that was nine years ago now right yeah the original gp yeah uh, i i was uh i don't think i was there for that one i think my first was 2013 or thereabouts mm-hmm. but, 12 sounds about right yeah. yeah but that's that's quite a story i mean uh so did you ever drive it the the marlin when, when it had the superchargers on it i did yeah so the first year that was the first year it was before the superchargers uh incident um they just put the the 454 truck motor in the car set about two feet back of where it should have been so the transmission's pretty much in the driver's lap when you're sitting in it and uh yeah, it, it ran really well. And uh, once we got all the kinks ironed out of it, you know, I mean, we put it through tech with the wrong length brake uh, actuator lever in it. So you had to stand with both feet to keep it from crawling over <laughs> <laughs> anything in its path. Um, but once it got sorted out, it was shockingly handleable. Um, I think Antoine coined it the, the 3,500 pound Mar- uh, uh, Miata. And it, I mean, I really didn't have any experience at all. And I had no problem rotating that giant muscle car of a thing like around it it really did great we had absolute garbage tires on it the first year like they were actually used truck tires like we got from like a like a mexican tire uh tire store you know <laughs> like what do you got no those tires are they look nice but what do you got <laughs> back there kind of thing <laughs> grabbed as many as we could and just roasted them off like and uh the sound they made was much better than actual race tires because race tires are they kind of do their job, which is to grip, right? And uh, but these tires did not. They would just spin and howl like a like a a banshee as you made corners, and smoke would come off in a spectacular fashion. So it didn't go very fast, but it definitely made an impression. Yeah, it was more <laughs> exciting that way, right? Much more exciting. <laughs> and to, I mean, to the designer's credit, that car's never been any good for any sort of sustained activity. It really is like a six to 10 lap car. And then you just need to take it in and change the brakes and change the tires and probably switch the motor or something. To, but uh, yeah, it's just too much when you turn it on all the time. To, I mean, Bob, I've seen it do it. Aaron has put a, a, a killer lap on that car, um, which is, it's crazy to think that that car can do, I can't remember what the best lap it ever did, but it was in the low 120s, like for that thing to be coming sideways around uh, every turn and every car on the track to give it a wide berth to not be crushed by it. Um, was a thing to behold, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was fun. Yeah, definitely. Uh, to, to start doing, to do lemons with that. And then the next season they decided, you know, amazing wasn't enough. We need to make it super amazing. So uh, with that, they put on the dual superchargers and uh, that worked. No, it didn't work at all. <laughs> like, I mean, occasionally it worked. Every, I mean, it was like the double suck. Like you'd get glimpses of greatness with it, but uh, it never really ran. And then it hiccuped while it was idling in the parking lot and um, drastically diminished the hearing of everybody that was standing slack jawed <laughs> above its open hood. Yeah, that's why um, you have blow off valves, right? Or, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and it had like spring rated, like spring oh, really? set on a on a valve, but the it was like a footnote. Uh, it was like down the the gotcha. dry erase board on things like replace nuts with actual springs on the blow off valve. <laughs> So yeah, I didn't... had that been done, it might have saved itself. But I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it definitely grenaded. 
And then, but what was nice is that they just took the throttle body injection off of the front of the supercharger setup and dropped it right back on top of the engine. And it was every bit as good as it was the year before. Right. And uh, so we did that and we got a one day of good racing out of it. And as soon as the car came back in off the last lap, Aaron's talking about, well, we're going to put a diesel Cummins in it this year, next year. And Johnny and I said, okay, we're going to make another car. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with the diesel Cummins project. We've got a Suzuki Swift. We're going to cage it and run it bone stocks so that we can make lots and lots of laps. Yeah, and we did. We were, we ran that thing for seven years. It was a great a great track car. Yeah, I mean, um, I I might have to have uh, or we might have to have um, Bob or Aaron or one of those guys on to talk about that car in a little bit more depth. But yeah, that thing was uh, it was pretty incredible. I got to drive it for a couple laps, and it was mm-hmm. it was it was an interesting uh, car. You know, very a uh, lot of a lot of vibration and, and shaking and stuff going on and uh, not the greatest brakes, but you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, Fun uh, fact, the, uh, the dog house, which protects the driver right. from the heat of the engine and the transmission has actual asbestos tiles. Oh, good. From Bob's garage, just screwed <laughs> onto the <laughs> side of it. <laughs> that's nice. Uh, and I'm quite sure that's what keeps your foot from actually catching on fire. I remember around lap 10, lap 12, if you're really giving it hell, like the foot, my foot being like roasting. Like I could tell there was a blister forming on my shoe from the heat coming off the doghouse but uh yeah if it weren't for that asbestos shingle it'd probably be worse <laughs> yeah and i don't know who has that car these days do you know it was gifted i think to another team that pledged to make it go again and that was probably the death of it i think it's going to sit in a, a yard and i don't know if it was even ever collected i think it's probably still sitting at uh at aaron's house down in the springs or at aaron's shop down in the springs and, uh, it wasn't last time I was there, but I don't remember if that was before or after he gifted it to someone else. But I want to say it was um, Matt Adair's relatives. Uh, oh, yes. I forget their That's name. That's the story I recall. So yeah, anyways, transportation, man, goofy stuff. I'm into anything that's weird. We, uh, through the Vespas and Lambrettas, I mean, I've raced scooters. We used to wear out knee pucks on our, on our tuned Lambretta open class, uh, open class racers. We had stock class P200 racers. We would run around at, uh, IMI up there in Erie. They have a little shift to car track. That's perfect for in Colorado turning funds. Yeah. Right here, uh, between, um, like here in Fort Collins. Okay. If you go straight up yeah, I-25, yeah. it's like uh, exit 232. Okay. Yeah, I think I've seen people doing like autocross or something over there. Is that what it yeah, is? Or? They, they'll let you run anything you want over there, but it is a very tight track. It's okay. like a shifter cart track. Yeah. So it's ideal for small motorcycles, scooters, shifter carts, that kind of thing. And you go out there and you're thinking of having a good time on a motor. I mean, a scooter... If you go out, I mean, you see all kinds out there. You see guys with tep tags on brand new crotch rockets that are just trying to learn. And then you see, you know, a five-year-old that's doing a four-wheel drift on a shifter cart passing on the inside as you make a corner. Um, But, I mean, they do a good job of it. If it's crowded day, they'll break it up between carts and bikes and do this and that. When we were doing it quite a bit, we would have 15 guys go up at a time. So we would talk the other motorcycle guys into letting us go out and grid a start and then they can come out afterwards and go out and try and chase us around a little bit. But uh, we did pretty well compared to any of the big bagger type bikes or, or cruiser stuff. Um, occasionally a sport bike would know how to drive and could hang in there. 
but uh some of the most fun i've ever had racing was with like a honda 125 like all aluminum like short track racing bike and my 225 lambretta which is just antiquated just awful machinery and <laughs> engineering but cobbled together and to where you get a pattern with somebody you get a comfortability where you're following their line into a turn and you're getting closer than you probably should to somebody's you know you're tired of their tire but you've you you're comfortable with them at that point you can feel the way that they're going to go through the turn and there's a a trust there and that's the most fun i've probably ever had in racing i mean i've had a few moments in lemons that have been as good but it wasn't even a race it was just out there practicing with some other guy in a completely different machine and finding those laps where we were so close that you could be right there within a second you know or a part of a second of each other and, and really dicing it up um and that was a super fun. And we, when we were up there, we got to see guys that were coming out from like the Honda factory team that were race tuning suspension. And it wasn't a race. They were just up there like grinding on changing out springs and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And we'd go over and chat up those guys and talk to them, you know, cause they were pro riders. It was cool to see them and meet them and stuff. And they're like, man, I never had as much fun as I did when I was racing scooters. You guys just, just keep doing it, man. <laughs> you know, nice. These are guys that do it for a living at that point. You're like, yeah, this is fun. You know, but looking back, he was right, man. That was the most fun we ever had when it was nothing on the line, $35 a day to just go and reuse the track and, you know, lay it all out there, figure out how your vehicle could turn or couldn't turn or what it's like when you do get it wrong and get it all crossed up and, and being young and dumb enough to be able to shake it off and get back on that same day. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, that does sound like fun. I, I've uh, I've seen some people do that with uh, with mopeds. Like I'm I'm more into the mopeds. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've talked about that a little bit. Um, yeah. But I guess for the listener, you know, the difference between a scooter and a moped. A moped is specifically 50 cc and has pedals. Actual pedals, yeah. And most of them were built in the late 70s, early 80s uh, during the gas crisis. Some of them were made by Vespa. I've got a, a Vespa Grande, but there's not really that much connection between scooters and mopeds. Uh, scooters have the enclosed bodywork, the smaller wheels. Um, mm-hmm. They're a motorcycle, sort of, but a little bit more user friendly and uh, made for, I guess, an urban environment, would you say? Yeah. I, I think ultimately they were made to keep ladies' skirts out of the engine. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you could, you know, uh, operate it and pack your groceries on there, get it to and from the market and not get dirty was kind of the, the main selling points of, of them. Um, and yeah, mopeds are a lot like motorcycles, but they have actual pedals. Well, here they do. In San Francisco, they take them off because you just park on a hill and bump start it. You roll down the hill and it starts. But uh, uh, yeah, otherwise you crank the pedals to get it going on a moped versus put, uh, kicking a kickstart on a scooter or a motorcycle. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, there, there's some design differences. I think scooters were, design was a major part of it, the aesthetics of it. It was a molded stamped body that had a curve to it, whether it's Vespa or Lambretta, it was that iconic teardrop shape. I mean, that's what got me into it initially was that you saw one. I saw a, a 1956 VL3 Vespa 150 up the street from when I was uh, just out of high school and it was metallic boat green and it was like just like the dew on a on like a rose <laughs> in the morning you know what I mean yeah, like yeah. it was just like it looked like it just dripped off of an artist's sketch pad like you can see the design in it and, and to me that's what, what kind of excited me I didn't really 
care a whole lot about the mechanics of it at that point. I just had that, like, I don't know what, the uh, Italian romance with the idea of the, the of the look of it. And uh, so that's what drew me in eventually. But then later we would learn how to squeeze every spare horsepower out of it, make it go a little bit faster, bench tune it, port it, you know, advance the timing, figure out what blows them up and then back it off a little bit, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. just trial by fire type tuning. And uh, yeah, I don't know. For I was always into bicycles before that. So I worked at a bike shop in the 90s. Um, I used to assemble specialized in Giants bikes. I would pull them out of the box and put them pedals on and tune the calipers and uh, the derailleurs and everything, make sure everything worked. And, and so, yeah, it wasn't a big step for me to go from the world of bicycles and before that low rider Schwinn's and stuff into scooters and then later race bikes or, or even uh, race cars. Are you still into bikes, uh, bicycles much at all? I ride quite a bit. Um, I, I don't say I'm into them. I just gave away my Bridgestone. I had a garage uh, fire. So in that, my Bridgestone got burnt up pretty good. It needed a tire and some other thing, probably a rear derailleur. And I had a friend who's who's into old Bridgestones and into old seven-speed LX and, and GT type uh, stuff. So uh, XT derailleurs and stuff. So I'm like, take this, just have it. He's like, oh, when do you need me to come pick it up? <laughs> so he's going to help me put a derailleur on the bike that I was salvaging, and said, if you, it was too small for me even when it wasn't burnt to a crisp, and now it's like, if you can save it, it's all yours, kind of thing. That's cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit more about the um, racing the the Swift, the Suzuki, uh, and I think mm-hmm. you all had a Miata at some point, also, right? Yeah. So. Our first race car, and Johnny and I have kind of been a team from day one. You know, John. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Johnny cuts Johnny Barbers. If you need a haircut, he's your man. Go see him. He's at Barber X. Um, but anyway, yeah, Johnny and I were racing auto uh, rally rather cro- rather rally cross before we got into lemons. And uh, our first car, our friends were running golfs or running sobs or running other cars. We went and just tried it. We thought this is great. We got to get a car. Let's do it. What's the best possible car we can get well we landed on a a a porsche 914 two liter four cylinder which is a spectacular like asphalt car turns out it's a terrible rallycross car but we gave it a go man we put uh uh, gravel tires on it we ran an unprepared class we uh, we were never any good we were terrible at at rallycross um but it was fun and even though you'd burn a whole day going to line up and you know then you work the course and it was cheap though it was you know 50 bucks a weekend or 60 bucks a weekend or something to go out and and get a few turns in and uh, that was fun uh so we did it in the 914 for a while and that was awful uh and then we decided after breaking that car every time we took it out for a little while we decided to to find something a little more reliable and that's how we came upon the swift and the swift was a, a mountain bro car up in uh one of the mountain towns right up off of I-70, uh, Frisco, is our buddies were living up in Frisco, and it had been handed down through the mountain bros who had been there long enough. You know, it was a California car that some girl moved there and then left it and gave it to somebody else and somebody else and then somebody else. We were told that if we got it out, it, it, what had happened was the battery died and the hood latch broke. Oh, So yeah. they couldn't pop the hood to, to jump it anymore <laughs> just to drive it around as a, as a mountain bro car. So uh, we said we take it sight unseen. We went up and paid them, I think, three hundred dollars for it, and uh, 
just got the uh, vice grips out and popped the cable and got the hood open and jumped it and changed the spark plugs, changed the oil on site and drove it back to Denver. We had it in Rallycross the next weekend and we ran it for two seasons in Rallycross. Uh, and that was a blast. We had a really good time with the Swift in Rallycross. And about that time is when we started running with Bob and those guys of, uh, of uh, speed holes racing. And, uh, when they said they were going to just totally reinvent the wheel on the Marlin after completely running, reinventing the wheel to start the Marlin, we said, okay, we've got a race car. Let's just throw a cage in this thing. And we got a few other guys that would rather turn laps than, than make the next IOE contender contender. So um, that's kind of how we got into it. And then we dredged along for half a decade in B class until they felt sorry enough for us to drop us down to C and then pretty quickly won C and then sold that car. And uh, now we have, uh, during that time, we bought a Miata, uh, which is an M-Class 1990. So it's got the 1.8 and uh, torsion rear end. It's a great little car. And we got it for free. Our friend is like, I got this Miata. If you know anybody looking, I might be selling. I'm like, cool. And this is about the time that my, my, second, my son was born. And he says, what do you think about this Miata? You want to take this Miata home? I said, Gary. I got a baby on the way. If I bring home a race car, you better have room for the rest of my stuff because I'm not going to move out. And he says, well, what if it's free? I said, what time do you need it picked up? <laughs> <laughs> and we went and like picked it up. Like the Corey came down with a flatbed and we loaded up Miata. Uh, there was a spare engine. There were, I mean, everything, gaskets. There was a, a, a rotor. There were, a, 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 I mean, every single spare you could imagine was that came with this car. It was like a Lemons team had run it and given up on it. And uh, we've now dredged it through. Uh, uh, we did a chump car with it. We did uh, World Racing League twice. And uh, we did Lemons with it once. And Lemons told us not to come back with the cage that we had. So now we bought a cage. We got to put it in. Um, but we also have to do a rear main seal on that motor. So. We'll see whether the we also in that time bought a nine another nine fourteen uh, with the plan to put the spare Miata motor in the nine fourteen to make uh, some sort of strange compromise of a hybrid dominating. Well, it'd be <laughs> more reliable than the Porsche motor, probably, right? Right, and you and I have talked about the the uh, Kia swap, like the oh yeah uh, yeah two point yeah. So I think that could be a possible. Uh, uh, engine donator uh, donation as well for the, for that platform. Yeah, but uh, for the listener, I mean, it's um, the I think it was a certain year of Kia Kia Sophia, uh, mm -hmm. like a five year period in the late nineties. They had the same exact engine block as a Mazda Miata. It was like built under license or something. You know, same long block, different manifolds, and a couple other things. Uh, but they'll you can get them for a lot cheaper than you can uh, Miata engine because they're they say Kia on them. You know, people don't want them, I guess. Sure. But um, I guess. Yeah. An extra 400 cc's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you get a one point eight. So one of the one of the I guess the origin story of this podcast, one of the reasons it started is because I was shit talking people on the Internet uh, or getting into an argument about whether a Miata is a sports car or not. You know, people are like, Oh no, it's a dinky little four cylinder Japanese car. That's not a sports car. And I'm like, no, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it fits all the, the criteria to be a sports car. So I guess what I'm asking you is to, <laughs> is a Miata a sports car? 
Well, all right. So I have a, a fun view on this. Okay. So my old my old man was a uh, he was an interesting dude. He came out of Detroit. He enlisted uh, and went into Vietnam at a time where he would have gotten picked anyways. His draft number came down to where he was going, whether he liked it or not. He enlisted and became an officer. Long story short, he told me when I was in elementary school. So this is uh, 1980s, early 80s. And uh, I thought that Ford probe gt was like this new spaceship looking car i thought this was a great sports car and i'm just you know you're talking about cars you know you're trying to bond with your dad about stuff and he goes that car has a back seat that's not a sports car (laughs) (laughs) and that's always stuck in my mind so it's like does a miata have a back seat no it does not so by default it's a more of a sports car than a Ford Probe GT. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, I don't know how anyone could say that the car that single-handedly saved the sports car platform, like how many Miatas have been made? A million Miatas? Yeah, I don't know exactly, but that sounds right. <laughs> like lots, like a whole lot of Miatas have been made and they have one purpose. It, it's, it's for driving. It was that Mazda was the only car company in the 90s that made cars just for the joy of driving like they were there was like you go in so like the swift is a good example too i mean those are that's as much as you could ever squeeze out of a crappy little econo box but like if you try to go in and bench tune a miata like you're going to go in like it's a torino and you're going to grind a smoother path through the intake it's not going to happen there's like a thousand engineers that have gone through that before you and have made the smoothest, most efficient path for that fuel to get to the engine. And then the most, you know, it's, it's already tuned. You can't fix it. Like uh, Miata spent or Mazda spent $5 million designing the initial Miata, but I'm going to spend $300 on eBay and somehow make it better. It's not going to happen. <laughs> like, very well, rarely. I mean, there's definitely people, <laughs> there's definitely people that tune up Miatas. They put turbos on them and stuff like that yeah you know, they're good you for that do but... things right <laughs> but i i think that it i think my, the first car i ever drove that was a stick was a mazda rx7 first gen gsl 1982 wankel um rear limited slip rear diff close ratio five speed you sit your butt is like on the floor like you're a cinder blocks width from the actual tarmac right. when you're like you're sitting in the thing and it feels fantastic like they didn't make a, you couldn't get a better car from the big three for driver's feel. Like, what are you going to get? Uh, you're going to get into a Mustang of that era, like a, a four-cylinder Mustang with a similar out, uh, horsepower of, of an RX-7 at that point. The driver's experience was totally removed. It was like like driving a bread truck compared to the <laughs> RX-7. The RX-7 yeah. was a Lotus 7, you know, <laughs> where like a Mustang was like a bread truck. Uh, but I don't know. I think that they did a great job with the Miata. They did a great job with the Mazda and they did it cheap. They put those cars in the market for, I think my mom got hers used for like $9,000. It was the most expensive car she'd ever bought herself at the time in like whatever that was, 1989 or something. And uh, you can't get, I mean, to, for today's dollars, that's like whatever, 30 grand you can't, or 20 grand. You can't get a car that's that good like that that much driver feedback you don't feel as connected to the road there's nothing like driving a 90 1990s mazda um rx7 or miata and for someone to say oh that's not a sports car it's like okay you clearly have never 
actually driven. <laughs> if you have actually <laughs> driven, your experience was so disconnected that you can't see yourself in a Miata because that's what you picture a hairdresser drives or something. Like, sure, okay. So, so okay, I'm curious. A Mazda Miata is not a sports car. I'll, I'll play along. What is a sports car then? Yeah, I, I mean... I'm not, I'm the wrong person to ask because I would I agree with you. A, a, a Miata is definitely a sports car, but you know there's always someone on the internet that will uh, sure you know be contrarian or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, I agree. I think, and I think be, because of that, we've uh, as Mazda Miata owners have uh, overreacted enough times to that question. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> nobody crickets us. Mazda Miata. <laughs> It's a real sports car, I swear. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I I bought I recently bought myself a Mustang. I got a 1990 uh, convertible LX five liter. Nice. It's what they call a seven up, which is the green uh, with the white interior, soft top, and it's a nice car. I mean, it's not it's not a driver's car in the way I don't even know that it's a sports car, but it's definitely a muscle car. Yeah. So I could argue what the difference between a muscle car and a sports car is. I think I could make a better lap at high planes in the Miata. In fact, I know I could make a better lap in the Miata than I could in the Mustang. I might be able to make a better lap in the Swift than I could (laughs) in the Mustang. (laughs) Yeah. It's the difference between, you know, circuit racing and drag racing, you know, you're going to have a different car for different applications. So totally. And yeah, I mean, every uh, to, to every job, its own hammer or whatever. But uh, the Mustang's fun to drive around the park. I like putting the, the the roof down and driving around on a cool evening in the summer or a nice warm spring daytime. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there there's there's arguments to be said for all those things. But I, I can't get behind anyone that says a Mazda Miata is not a sports car because I'm having trouble imagining what is if it's not okay i'll, I'll pass that along to <laughs> to the, the the naysayers you know right <laughs> well cool well uh any other any other interesting vehicles in your stable right now i know you had that that um that weird little snowmobile machine uh, yes so i have had a recent fascination with different types of transportation so uh my buddy got what uh, what we call a snow runner uh chrysler made them it was a a moped pretty much that chrysler put together it had a, a monocoque frame which was the fuel silage so the fuel tank is the frame type thing and then it breaks down with a few quick releases and you can fold out this uh what is a moped sized well i mean it's 125 cc so it's a little bit stronger than a moped would be but it's got a, like a three inch or four inch wide snowmobile track like it's got an actual track that runs four feet of you know front to back and then it's got foot pegs and it's got a funky little ski in the front that sort of changes the direction <laughs> you're going if you tell it to so i mean that is a, a real kick in the pants it's a super good time to ride a snow runner around if you ever get the chance i highly recommend it um, and then I fell backwards into the world of uh, completely passe and, and outdated uh, watercraft. So I picked up a, a Polaris Industries um, a wet bike, which is it was featured in a oh, James yeah, Bond those movie. Those things, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, about I mean, that. Uh, right. I mean, uh, who's the the kingpin out of uh, Colombia? Was uh, Escobar? Uh, 
Yes, there's a picture of Escobar standing on the seat of one riding along, like in his little like private ranch. Um, so I, I I found one of those. I got it for a hundred bucks, and uh, I was able to put a couple hundred dollars into it and get it running. And I actually got it on the water a couple seasons ago. And then last year I I rode it all season long. It, it actually did great. Um, so that thing's a riot because it, it it just is such a weird idea for that thing. Like you have to kind of be out there to decide we've okay we made a snowmobile that worked great and we know boats are a thing so let's make a moped boat kind of like idea <laughs> and this whole thing for the listener is a hydroplane like it sits and floats in the water but once you get it up to speed it's a jet but the jet doesn't turn like a jet ski the front has a fork on it with another ski on the front which helps to steer the vehicle which has a fixed jet uh which makes for a very um drunken rodeo sort of first day <laughs> we've seen some uh, uh gallant attempts to learn to ride it that, that that eventually worked out but maybe got tossed off the first couple tries and it's it's fun i mean it's the sort of thing that i i am easily talked into a questionable idea and if i can get a couple days worth of fun out of a thousand dollar or less investment in something that makes people go what are you thinking that's bonkers can i ride it then that is that's fun for me. I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. So I did that. And then another friend of mine uh, or a friend of mine's uncle passed away. Uh, rest in peace. And his uh, widow had a, 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 an estate sale. So I picked up a few of his uh, stand up jet skis. So um, I was lucky to, enough to find out that those were Frankenstein swapped with larger displacement motors. And um, the ones that have run have been uh, relatively ludicrous. Like I, I had to spend a season riding it before I could insist with an open throttle on it and pretty flat water. But I don't know. I, I'm sort of that guy now. I mean, I know the uh, stigma that comes along with, with jet skis and personal <laughs> watercraft. There's no utilitarian use for them at all. Like you just pour money in and then it makes noise and has fun. Like there's no real, like uh, you can't go to work on a jet ski, at least not in this state. But <laughs> Unless your your job is just on the other side of Chatfield or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> or if you get one of those like cross like vehicles where it's it's a motorcycle, but then you ride it into the water and it pulls the wheels up, and you're then you're a jet ski, and then it rides out. I would definitely find a way to go through the middle of every uh, reservoir in town if I had one of those, <laughs> but I do not yet. So it's on my list. That um, I think those uh, German. Um, boats that are amphibious have you seen these they've kind of made a rise in popularity in the last five years um god what are they called it's so ridiculous that i can't even remember the name but anyways it's just like a it looks like an amusement park ride but it seats about two or maybe four people in it and it's a 40 mile an hour vehicle on the road and you can drive it right down the boat ramp and then it has a propeller and you can go, I don't know what, for 10 knots or something like that on it. And uh, so, yeah, that would be another thing that I would have to sell something to make room for if I could find my way into one. Yeah, I mean, I've but, seen yes. a few of those amphibious cars. Like there's that um, the one that Lyndon Amphicar. Johnson had. What? Yeah. The Amphicar. Amphicar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was what I was thinking of. There was um, there's some guy in Boulder that had one of those that I talked to years and years ago. I almost bought a sob from him, but... uh. Nice. That's another story. <laughs> uh, was it a two-stroke Saab? No, no, it was a Saab 900 Turbo, I believe. Okay, um, there you go. It was uh, it was when I was working at Target, so I had no money, 
um, mm. and it was cheap but had lots of problems, so I didn't have the resources to fix it. So I passed. I think Aaron might have bought it, uh, nice. and then it broke, you know, pretty soon after that. Moments so later. it's probably yeah. good that I didn't buy it. Uh, you know, you broke go. in a catastrophic way. I forget exactly exactly what the deal was, but um, what was I going to say? You'd met a guy with an Amphicar. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was uh, the the whole the story with that was his garage where he had his, all his cars was in the middle of the, I think it was the 2013 floods that they had there. Oh yeah. And uh, the Amphicar floated in his garage and then floated around and smashed everything underneath oh, it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's sad, but in a way it, it sort of was like the cream of the crop rise <laughs> to the top. <laughs> yeah. It was the only one that, uh, well, I don't know, maybe it was damaged on the underside. I don't know. Mm. But uh, I was going to ask, um, I, I know I, I saw you were at the uh, same Bernie rally in 2020 yeah. that I was. Um, I, it was a good time. Yeah. Um, are, have you been involved with uh, politics much at all other than that? or? <sighs> I mean, that was kind of like the high water mark. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. I mean, that's where you still have hope. Like your candidate is alive. <laughs> like you like really like there's a chance that you could have everything that you want. Right. And then from there, I mean, you, you, I don't have to tell you that it was disappointing. Yeah. COVID happens. They pretty much just concede the primaries without any contest or any tallying of anything. And then we're supposed to be excited about the fact that uh, we're somehow pulling the party left because 10,000 people showed up in every town that he went to. And that's true. I'm sure it's measurably true, but I don't know. It's you can't I mean, you have to just have faith, I guess, in the process. And I I feel like I'm I'm have genuinely leftist principles when it comes to access to healthcare, access to education, when it comes to debt relief for uh, for uh, college. Um, all these things. I think a basic income, I'm not far off on any of that stuff. Like, I think I'm right there. But yeah, then then you see Bernie say, okay, well, we, we're conceding the fight and we're going to get behind Joe. And it's like, okay, are we though? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. That's, that's the thing now. I mean, you have to just be okay, I guess, with the fact that we get to pick the Supreme, we, that, that, that someone left of right gets to pick the supreme court justices for the next four years right and hopefully there's a couple um you you hope that the policy that he's advancing gets a second look you know i mean you look for people like aoc you look at like uh our, our representatives from detroit and, and some of our, our good representatives here from colorado that genuinely are pushing the agenda and keeping it going to the left but there's a lot of placating there's a lot of pacification and it feels like progress, but it's not really. I mean, it's just a different invading. It's, it's a different flag on the invading force. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it doesn't really feel like, uh, uh, I mean, is it better than Donald Trump? Fucking A, it's better than Donald Trump. But I mean, come on, you know, like some of that stuff. So yes, am I involved? Yes, it occupies a good part of my consciousness, a good part of my being. Am I knocking doors at this point? Am I am I handing out flyers? Am I uh, organizing sit-ins? No, I'm not at this point. I'm not as involved as I could be, um, but I do still pay attention. I do try to be involved in in certain things in certain ways. I try to, uh, in my own way. I mean, I, I I'm I'm a class trader. I'm a property owner. I rent my own property out, <laughs> you know. Then so I get that, but I feel like I'm validated in that. 
when I do put my property up for rent, people are like, you're insane. This should be $500 more per month, you know, but I'm making decent money and it's okay to own it for me right now. And it's still part of my retirement. Maybe I'll keep it forever. Maybe I won't, but uh, yeah, I'm hoarding wealth. I'm that guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I get it. I'm, I'm a hypocrite, but uh, um, I don't know. I, I do still try to push for, uh, the people in my local school district that I feel like are doing the right thing by the teachers. I do still push for uh, access to health care, for access to uh, assistance for housing. I want to see something done about the homeless situation in Denver, you know, that isn't just kicking the can down the road for another year. All these things matter to me, but yeah, it doesn't define me, but I am, I, I care. I try. I, I do make an effort. Yeah, no, I mean, that resonates with me, um, at least with, uh, the whole Bernie campaign, you know, that, that whole disappointment really put me off electoral politics, uh, in a big way. And a lot of, a lot of other folks I know, and, you know, I haven't been as involved as I'd like to be either, you know, right. I'm not pretending that doing this podcast is actually pra- praxis or, or activism or anything like that. That's definitely not the case, but, uh, yeah, I can, I think a lot of folks are feeling the same way that you are about that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to think, I mean, I've been, I don't know how old you are. I was born in 77. So I feel like over my lifetime, there was kind of like a big, there was, there was the Ronald Reagan uh, conservatism wave that really took, I mean, a long time to break and roll back. Like, I feel like even though Clinton got two terms, it was still a very conservative version of democratic politics. Yep. yep. And, and to see, to see through that, and then to see someone like Bernie have a real chance, two election cycles in a row, it shows me that there is a truly left growing part of this country. And maybe, I mean, it's frustrating because in this country, we have two, we have two parties, right? One of them is conservative and the other one is a great big mashup apology slash compromise. Like there's no left party, like the, the, our left party is what most other countries call conservative so it's 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 concerning but to see someone like bernie gaining traction and gaining uh, a voice i'm concerned for what comes after bernie he's not a young man you know what i mean like and and who are going to be the next players that 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 actually shape what leftist politics in this com- uh, country look like i don't know what that the answer to that is but i'm hoping that there's momentum for them i hope that there's a space that that some of the the more left leaning politicians in this country can can get a foothold in and and do something with and and I'm here for them. I will donate to those causes. I do donate to those campaigns when I feel like it's a a, a key issue. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I've got mixed feelings about donating to campaigns in other parts of the country that I don't live in, that I don't vote in. But it that's kind of the game that we're locked into at this point. So if there's a key race you've got to put your money in there and and i still feel motivated and bernie was one of the first candidates that got me to regularly just give him some money it's like he'd show up in his brown coat and his mittens and go give me some money i'm like sure bernie here's 37 dollars. you got it man (laughs) see you next week i'll give you another one (laughs) but uh yeah i don't know um i'd like to see change i mean you, you it's encouraging to see places like colorado that are now blue but how blue is Polis really? I mean, he, he's pretty tied to to the local economy. He's pretty. I, I felt like if you gave him a choice between killing ten thousand people and opening restaurants, he'd kill the people yeah. and open the restaurants in a heartbeat. Like it's, you don't see 
I I don't see someone that represents my politics in, in my district. But so you have to just pick the, the nearest next best thing, which is which is saddening. But uh, it's that or don't play. And I think you have to play. You got to pay attention. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking a little bit when we were when we were talking about uh, doing the interview and, and all that, like, you know, we we're both interested in scooters and mopeds and things that have these two stroke engines mm-hmm. that, you know, I think I looked it up like even a 50 CC moped with a two stroke engine makes like 30 times the harmful emissions that a regular car does per mile or something like that. I have no business in a leftist environmentalist position with the addiction to, to motorsports <laughs> that I currently hold. I understand. Uh, I think uh, Thelonious Monk said when he was uh, challenged on, on a juxtaposition of that fashion that he contained multitudes. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd like to think of myself as a somewhat less uh, psychologically evolved version of, of him in that statement. And that I think, I mean, there's a couple of ways you can go about it, right? So say you have a giant dually big block GM truck and it was given to you for free. Do you just give that away so that someone else can drive it the rest of their life instead of you in hopes that maybe you're doing the earth a favor by mining lithium and or you know, mining iron ore and buying a volt or a Prius or something and or an electric motorcycle or a bicycle even. Like, uh, I feel like there's some justification for using machines as they were intended. So we're not mass producing large displacement two two cycle vehicles anymore. You can't get a two cycle car anymore. You haven't been able to since the the, the 60s or 70s. You uh, can barely get a two cycle motorcycle. The only way you can get it is if it's an off-road vehicle and certain states allow you to register them on road to ride to the trail or something. But even, so my Husqvarna, I've got a Husqvarna TE350. It's a 1995 dirt bike. It was a cool dirt bike for the time, Um, but it's four stroke. That thing, I get 10 hours of use time before I've got to change the oil on it. So it's, you're dumping an enormous amount of oil on the ground, just using the vehicle that's there. But at what point does it make sense to retire that thing, scrap it, recycle it, give it away, sell it? it's still going to be in use in some way, or it should be rather than getting a new, you know, $20,000 zero motorcycle that's electric. And I mean, sure it's zero emissions, but is the electricity you're putting into it made with zero emissions? Are we, are you charging it off your solar panels? Because if you're not, it's probably coal fired. So like if say you've got a town and country Pacifica, you know, and, and you charge that thing up and you never buy a tank of gas ever. Well, if you don't have a solar farm, you're still burning coal to put electricity in your car. So, I mean, yes, there's advances and we need to kind of go along with that, but I don't think that we need to seize all the dirty dirt bikes and, and old cars. Like, uh, I think there should be loopholes for people that drive 5,000 miles or less per year that we don't have to do emissions because who cares? If you're not driving five, if you're not putting 20,000 miles a year on your car, who cares if it's clean or not? You're really not even basically using it. You're just saving a place instead of filling it with a lithium battery, fresh iron ore mined vehicle uh, or plastic, you know, mostly plastic and, and whatever else that goes into them. I think that the gradual adaptation of modern technology is the right way to go about it. I think I don't 
feel like I have to apologize too terribly to my children for the fact that I love old two cycle dirt bikes and scooters and, and watercraft and stuff. It just is what it is to a certain point. Eventually it'll be four cycle only, or even electric only, uh, to a lot of that stuff. But, uh, if we all sold our cars today and all put in orders for new Teslas or, or, or Priuses or whatever, we do more immediate harm in just creating those new products to purchase than we would just using the products that are in, in the space. So that was a long way around the barn to say that I, I do not apologize for the fun <laughs> that I have while creating blue smoke and, and burning up tires on racetracks. <laughs> no, I, I uh, largely agree. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, this is something that we were thinking of doing an episode on eventually. We haven't like done the research, ran the numbers or anything on like when it's a, a good choice to buy a new vehicle that, mm-hmm. that is more efficient than an old vehicle. You know, um, yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm the idea that I'm exploring right now is like, there's millions of people in like, um, third world countries, mostly like India, China. Well, but me, I don't know if China is a third world country anymore, but mm-hmm. parts of it are. Yeah. Um, that have small motorcycles, usually like four stroke Honda cub clones, you know, right. um, little 80 CC or hundred CC. Yeah. Something like that. And yeah. that to me feels like the, the best, uh, if you're going to have a vehicle that's powered with an internal combustion engine, that seems like the the most ecologically friendly thing to do is have something like that. And I feel like sure. that could, for a lot of folks in uh, first world countries, could replace a car. Maybe not in Colorado when there's snow and stuff. But, um, you know, it's I, I wonder why more people don't look to that type of vehicle. Yeah, I think plenty of people do. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I've been, since I lived out here, I came out here as part of that big scooter trip around the country. Uh, Because of that, I got plugged in with the scooter scene out here and almost immediately started working for one of the local scooter shops, the Sportique Scooters, which has had several locations in Boulder and Denver and Colorado Springs and a couple others. Um, So working with them and seeing, there are people, there's plenty of people that are ordering sand and snow tires for their automatic scooters and they're riding them in town almost every day of the year i mean if we get a foot of snow then you just park it and get an uber or something but the cost of doing that plus the cost of owning and operating a a two-wheeled vehicle is still half of what it would be to maintain even a good used car you know and and the registrations and the emissions and everything else you have to do for those so people do it but it's typically a metropolitan experience. You're not seeing people that are traveling from Brighton to Denver or from Boulder to Denver that are diehard year-round riders. I mean, there's some, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Adventure Riders Forum. Um, it's a Colorado, there's a regional forum called Adventure Riders and they're mostly BMW GS riders. There's some dirt bike, KTM guys, Honda guys, different types of uh, riders, but they're overland two-wheeled rider guys and uh they there's that group of guys that they ride all year round but it's sort of a novelty you know what i mean so like uh, there's a little bit of crossover there the guys wear similar gear it's like the snow covering front thing or on a scooter you'd have a skirt which attaches to, from the bike to your actual lap to keep the snow off your lap but i don't know I, the greater question for me is 
how many people are really commuting anymore? It seems like we've almost defeated the office workplace in the last year and a half. Um, I'll be shocked to see if all of those office parks in Broomfield and the tech center fill back up. Like, how can they justify getting people out of their pajamas and coming back down to the tech center after the, all this is done? If you can not have that whatever per square footage cost of lease and upkeep and maintenance and everything else, and instead give people $150 per month stipend to have a good internet connection and to work, do exactly what they do from the office from home anyways. I mean, unless you're customer facing, that it's got to be half the, the workforce, right? Could probably just stay. We proved that a year ago today, they were like, okay, we're shutting down the entire government. Everybody must stay from home. How many people got that week off? I mean, I didn't. I still worked. You know, I didn't leave. I didn't take my pajamas off, but I still worked. <laughs> so it's like, why? I, I had been working from home that whole time, but many other people joined my exact exact situation and just did what we normally do, but through Zoom and Skype rather than spending that two hours a day getting ready, getting in your car, driving to the tech center, parking your car, walking into your office with your coffee. I do that exact same operation except it's get out of bed brush my teeth do a little workout make while well, i make my coffee walk downstairs and i'm here i have been doing it this way for 15 years it's it would take an enormous amount of misfortune or or, or a lack of opportunity to get me to go yes i need to spend that two hours a day in a car that i need to pay another payment on just to go and do i mean i probably couldn't have my pocket change goof around rusty mustang and still go and do a tech center job you know what i mean i'd have to pretty quickly justify a, a car payment on something more more reliable to go and do to do that kind of facetime with my boss which i just prefer not to do so i'm hoping that there through the pandemic will be a workers revolution of sorts <laughs> where we say fuck this i'm not putting on a suit or even just a pressed pair of slacks so I can have what should have been an email of an in-person meeting on a Monday morning. So I hope that we as a workforce get some strength in that and we get to spend a little bit less time in transit, a little bit more time with our families or, you know, taking our lunches with the people we care about. Even if it's our cat or a dog or whatever, it's like that, that time is so much more rewarding to be spent on our time rather than getting in line with every other guy in their commute between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. And then God forbid one of us gets in a wreck and the rest of us rubberneck and get into five more wrecks and it takes five times as long to get there. Uh, it just seems that's an antiquated form of transportation. I don't have a romanticized vision of. <laughs> like I, I want to have like a smoky, two-stroke smelling, like cat, outside of a Roman holiday cafe type of antiquated transportation experience. Not a yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. For every day, I, I, or I hope I speak for the rest of my co-hosts when I say I think we're we're sort of pro car pro motorcycle, pro scooter, whatever, but anti-commuting, you know, if we could get rid of commuting, right. especially with, you know, with cars and trucks and everything that, you know, we, we definitely uh, be in favor of that. Like I, I, I'd like to see a lot bigger investment in public transit so that the people oh, yeah. that don't want to have a car, you know, have an option, have an option, you know, instead of buying mm -hmm. a Camry and just driving it and maintaining it and getting insurance and everything, take the train, take the bus, 
maybe take a scooter, something like that. And then, you know, if, if we want to have fun on the weekends with our mopeds or scooters or cars or what have you, Mm -hmm. jet skis, you know, there that's, that frees up the roads and the, and everything for the rest for us, you know? Um, Oh yeah. So that's kind of the thesis I'm working with right now, at least. I don't know how uh, good that is or. (laughs) I'll co-sign. Yeah. That sounds great. Cool. cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I guess we could talk about this. I um I found a couple of things when I was looking into to Vespa just mm-hmm. getting ready to talk to you. I know I think we talked about this a little bit, but Vespa um sort of had some interesting technologies back in the day, which is something that I'm always focused on is the weird mm-hmm. tech stuff. Um yeah. they had I think they were one of the first to do a rotary valve intake. Um which um, I believe on the on the scooters and on the mopeds, it's using a section of the crankshaft to cover and uncover a port. Uh, to... Yeah, if you can imagine like a Pac-Man or a cheese wheel with a slice <laughs> cut out in a Pac-Man yeah. shape, when the mouth goes past the intake and the, the the porting for the cylinder, that's when it opens up and allows a draw through. So yeah, it's a a large central mass which is rotating so that's where you get torque uh from it rotating in that fashion but then it also draws your charge which has your two cycle through the center of the crank which has a lot of heat from the bearings and the cylinder and everything so it cools and lubricates the cylinder with the charge uh which was it's pretty cool uh the way that they did that and and uh, as you get into vespa tuning you can cut that you can bench grind those open a little bit you can extend intake uh porting you can uh, go full circle crank, which would be 360 degrees of intake, and then you'd have to institute a reed valve. Um, there's a lot of tricks you can do to maximize exhaust back pressure and expansion chambers and um, all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that attracted me to two-stroke engines and mopeds is, you know, they're cheap, they're the parts are pretty uh, easy to come by, and you can mm-hmm. do all these little weird things. There's only three moving parts in the engine. So you can right. do all these little tweaks and, and change things. Yeah, they all come with a certain amount of safety barri- uh, barrier in them. And that's where the fun lives. Yeah. <laughs> so you can you can remove the safety barrier and get more fun out of them. But the, the more you remove, the more likely it is to fail. So <laughs> it's kind of like uh, playing poker a, a, a little bit. You've got to kind of have the, the nerve to, to tune something within an inch of it exploding. Yeah. And then do it again once it does blow up and stop right before that. And and the other thing that I came across, which I think this was only used on a few engines in the 90s and only sold in Europe, as far as I could tell. I couldn't find a whole lot of info on this in English. Um, mm-hmm. But the I think it was a 97 Vespa ET2 uh, 50cc. Okay. Interesting. They had uh, what they called a stratified charge like direct injection system. Hmm. Have you heard about wow. this? I have not. Yeah, it, it was. They, they were not on the ET2s that we got. They were just standard carbureted models. Yeah, because but... I looked up uh, like an exploded view of the US model engine. I'm like, well, there's there's nothing that looks like what this is describing. So right. from what I understand, it had a um, it had a little piston and crankshaft in built into the head, uh, ran by a timing belt. And then that okay. um, used a couple of like little reed valves 
or um, wild or uh, pressure activated valves to mm-hmm. squirt a very rich fuel air mixture into the top right by the spark plug. So you'd have a very lean or even just air coming in through the crankcase with a little bit of oil in it. Mm -hmm. And then you'd shoot this little bit of very rich air into the top right by the spark plug. Um, And I guess it was an emissions thing. Um, Yeah. And it sounds like an interesting concept, but I guess they abandoned it, you know, not, not after too long. Um, I'm guessing. Well, Vespa uh, and Aprilia were working, were pretty much the same company by that time. By by the mid 90s, Aprilia and Vespa were under the same development team. And Aprilia was developing fuel injection at the time, which was just, I mean, pretty, it was just a precursor to what is now modern fuel injection for a lot of different types of things. But it was on two cycles and it worked really well below about 7,000 feet in elevation. Oh, okay. So. Right. So that created an interesting problem for dealers out here because plenty of people from Aspen or from Breckenridge would come down and get the brand new this year's model Aprilia SR50 fuel injected, supposed to be the most uh, green, ecological, fuel efficient, but performance minded vehicle you can get. Well, that's great, but they don't work at 9000 feet like they just won't run. Um, So that was a couple of years of disaster for Aprilia to try and really just give people money back above those elevations. Like there really wasn't a good fix. Uh, in fact, they would sell them or trade them out previous year models to just give them the carbureted version because it wouldn't work above a certain sea level. So I don't know if that had anything to do with the tuning they were doing for that, uh, that ET2, but I imagine that they had some of the same scientists working on the same projects. I, God, I hope they've worked out the fuel injection by now. That The last time I worked there was 15 years ago, so I don't know that they have or haven't, but I would think that they, it's got to be better by now. Yeah, I don't know about Aprilia or, or Vespa. Um, I do know that, uh, I think it was one of the Canadian uh, snowmobile manufacturers has direct injection motor. Oh, cool. Um, two-cycle? Yeah, two-cycle. It's like a... Wow. It's like an 800 cc engine that makes like 150 horsepower or something crazy like that. Oh, they're bonkers! Yeah, yeah. So they've got sleds that make 200 plus horsepower, like turbo four cylinder, like bonkers, bonkers sleds. Um, And I mean, timber sleds are another cool thing. Like, have you seen these are timber bikes? So you you can get a conversion for a high end, like a 650 uh, dirt bike. Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about a ski instead of a front wheel and a track setup for your rear wheel. And, and they're cool too. And I was talking with a guy about at the dealer about those. I said, well, it seems like a lot of fun. He's like, yeah, if you're in tight trees, I'm like, well, what if you're not? He's like, well, that sled over there has 200 horsepower. And a much wider track on it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like you can go anywhere on that. Yeah. You can fart around on this dirt bike with a track conversion, but that would go anywhere. Like, so, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends on what you want to do. Um, I haven't ever gotten that far away from my house to where I needed that kind of a modification to a vehicle, but I'm all for it. Yeah. Oh, I have, I have something other interesting to share. I have a friend of mine who is going to try for the world's uh, land speed record in September. They're doing a small displacement land speed record event uh, at Bonneville in uh, Salt Flats. So they're going to be registering and running all sorts of small displacement vehicles for land speed records. And he's going to build a Quattrini 250cc motor for a Vespa that they're going to run on. 
Um, he's geared it up to run about 145 miles per hour in a vacuum. So he's hoping to get 120 <laughs> maybe yeah. uh, on the flats if the wind, if the breeze comes at his back. Um, <laughs> and then he's got a smaller one, 150 CC or 149 CC small frame Vespa setup. Um, and these guys are going to go out and make a uh, go at it this year. So I donated a bunch of parts to their, their effort and cool. I'm trying to help them get squared away. And, and who knows, I might drive out there in September and watch them make a go at it. Yeah, definitely. So is it is it on the stock uh, Vespa frame and everything? Yeah, he is a hopeless romantic when it comes to like doing things just because um, there's plenty of better ways to you can move to a larger wheel frame. You could do telescoping forks. You could do all the things that would make more sense. He doesn't want to do any of that. He wants to ride on a factory monocoque Vespa frame, which is this, you know, stamp steel uh, shell uh and fork um and then he's building the motor to fit within that and i think they might be doing drop bars and some stuff but they're really yeah. not doing a whole lot of work on them for aerodynamics which i think is a, a folly but this is their first year so i think they're trying to set the bench uh, the you know the mark at an attainable level that they can beat it next year and then continue to beat it year after year yeah definitely i i mean keep me posted on that i i might be interested in going out to uh bonneville i've always wanted to go and never have. Um, it's always been shut down because the weather's not right or it floods mm -hmm. or it doesn't flood enough or, you know. And this is but. a separate thing from Speed Week. This isn't okay. the Speed Week thing, but it is at Bonneville uh, gotcha. or it is the same Salt Flats area. It's not the weekend that they run all the hot rods and the uh, the nitro cars and all that stuff. This is just for small displacement motorcycles and stuff. Cool. So, uh, but yeah, I think I said it's the second or third week in September this year. I'll get you the information. Yeah, yeah. I know there's... um. This uh, Swedish guy, I think he's Swedish or Norwegian, on mm -hmm. YouTube that I've been following, that uh, is trying to set the record for 50 cc two-stroke nice. uh, out on the flats. And I think uh, last time he was out there was in like 2019 and had some problems and only went like 90 or something. Mm -hmm. um, for but, 50 cc's. <laughs> yeah. No, he's That's making awesome. like 20 horsepower with this thing right, right. now. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty insane. Uh, the the channel is called Two-Stroke Stuffing. Okay. Uh, if you ever want to check it out, he's got I some will. some interesting stuff, like he's three D printing cylinders and stuff. What? You know? yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, uh, pretty interesting stuff going on with two strokes. If he goes this year, I bet it's the same event, like uh, yeah, that they're doing out there. But yeah, I'm I'm hoping my guys get to make it. Johnny is supposed to be the the small frame pilot for it. Oh really? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. And maybe I'll have to talk to Johnny. I don't know him too well, but. Uh, uh, you know, I see him at the Lemon stuff, but sure. And his buddy J Rock uh, Jared is a Formula V racer. He runs with Rocky Mountain Vintage Racing. Uh, he's going to come out and ride the the large frame. Formula V, that's like Volkswagen thing. Yeah, it's where they make those kind of uh, vintage cigar looking like race car, almost like uh, '60s um, Le Mans looking cars, but they make them out of uh, Volkswagen platforms. Okay. They have to they have to use Volkswagen suspension in the front. They have to use uh 1300 cc motors they have to use stock wide five brakes it's a really cool class like they run interesting yeah and they run like 60 horsepower 70 horsepower on these cars yeah. but they make like a 215 around high high plains raceway okay yeah, yeah so they're good. they're doubling our corner speed in yeah. like most of the corners which is bonkers but they only run for 40 minutes so they're running like pretty much liquid tires you know i mean they just leave most of the rubber on the track but really cool stuff and i don't know i'm addicted to seat time like going from uh, rallycross into lemons like where you would get 
six, maybe 12 minutes a day uh, in rate of actual seat time running in rallycross to lemons where you get, if you're lucky, four or five hours of seat time in a weekend. It's, yeah, it's five times as expensive and it's 100% worth it. Like I, I, I have a hard time going back to of even getting excited about Formula V or doing any of the vintage like racing stuff because it's a 45 minute heat. Like, I don't know how I could, I, I couldn't give a weekend away for 45 minutes of seat time. <laughs> but uh, I say that and the next time I get in the race car, it'll blow up before I even get it. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I don't know if I've gotten 45 <laughs> minutes total in, in lemons. So, <laughs> Oh man, I'm sorry. You got to run with us. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking I, I might end up uh, running with uh, those guys eventually, but we'll see about that. That's awesome. But um, That's all I had, I think. Um, I'm sure there's other stuff we could talk about, you know, but uh, probably want to wrap yeah, it up here in a minute. Yeah, I'm com- Monday morning's barreling down on me, so uh, yeah. probably want to get at that, but I really appreciate the chance to chat, and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. It was good. Yeah. Cool. So now should we talk about scooters and mopeds and stuff? Yeah. All right. So so what do you all want to know about scooters and mopeds? I guess I can go through a little history that wasn't covered in the in the uh, interview part. Yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like, you know, the first motorcycle was technically a moped. You know, you just took a motor and put it on a bicycle and uh hey presto that's a motorcycle so like but as far as like 50 cc uh scooters and all that kind of stuff like that kind of came out of regulation mostly in i believe after world war ii uh when there's you know fuel rationing especially in europe Hmm. and you know most people couldn't afford a car um so you had stuff like the the micro cars like the Messerschmitt and BMW little bubble cars. But a lot of people in Europe and still today uh, get around on, you know, motorized bicycles, scooters, mopeds. And so the difference, a moped is 50 cc's has pedals like a bicycle. And usually they're limited to about 30 miles an hour, uh, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in. And in some places, you don't need like a license or um, insurance or anything. Uh, in Colorado, you do, but you don't need a motorcycle license. Hmm. And then a scooter is like what you think of as a Vespa. It has enclosed bodywork. It has smaller wheels. It can it can be a 50cc. And then sometimes that fits into the same regulations as a moped. But also you can have bigger engines. I think there's some mopeds or excuse me, there's some scooters that have like 300 cc motors. Usually they're still single cylinder uh, and they have the engine transmission and swing arm, you know, all attached to the back wheel, all in one unit that moves together. Hmm. But that's kind of the the form, you know, it's it's a step through design so you can get on it easier. It's more enclosed, so you're not going to get your clothes caught up in a chain or something like that it's a little more commuter friendly exactly yeah it's it's meant for 
you know, riding around in the city and um, getting would good you mileage. And... Scooting? What's that? D- d- bad joke. I said, would you say it's meant for scooting? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> As to where mopeds are more meant for moping. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, and so mopeds in America, they only really came to America in the late 70s with the oil crisis. And uh, they were mostly European companies that were putting them out, like Vespa, uh, Pook is a big one. I'm trying to think what else. Tomos. Tomos actually kept making mopeds up till 2014. They were the Are last one. Peugeot mopeds? Yeah, Peugeot. Um, there's another French bike, too. I forget the name of it. Uh, and then there was all these other little mm-hmm. smaller companies that where they would take a frame from this uh, company and an engine from this company and you know these handlebars and whatever and just kind of put them together kind of like you know when you have a car that's like assembled in the usa from foreign compo- components you know they do the final assembly in the u.s to say it's an american car but it's really just full of uh components from all over the place uh, they did a lot of the same stuff with mopeds so that's like how sears uh sold their their own brand of uh mopeds they had like a sears allstate brand or or was that something else i i know that was a sears brand moped which was basically just a pook um i think uh what is it is it am amx the like bowling company that owned um amf amf that owned uh they owned harley for a while um they put out a moped and um hold on hold on hold on hold on a bowling alley company that owned Harley Davidson for a while. You yeah. didn't know that, dude? No. <laughs> yeah, what? Why are we just glossing over that? That seemed like a big thing there. What is this? I thought that was common knowledge, dude. The company that makes like equipment for bowl, like for bowling pin or for for like bowling lanes. Yeah, they owned Harley from. I want to say it was like. 1970-ish to like 82 or 83, like the ballpark years. I'm not sure I remember exactly. They're notorious for making the worst Harleys that don't want to run. Um, well, I guess I can... that's because their expertise is in fucking bowling alleys. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where to a casual observer, it doesn't make any sense. But like if you're making the kind of machinery that works behind the scenes at a bowling alley, like it doesn't necessarily translate to an internal combustion engine, but it doesn't necessarily not. Well, yeah, that's the same with with any, you know, conglomerate ass company or Elon Musk, who's like, hey, I'm an expert in, you know, PayPal and also tunnels and apparently electric cars for some reason. You're like, those things aren't related. You're not an expert in all those things. You liar. I, literally, I literally don't think AMF changed anything from the Harley designs that were like in production when they bought them their quality control and like they let their they let their tooling go shitty and uh they didn't really have good quality control so just it hurt their reputation because a lot of like bad bikes would come through there's stories about uh dealerships getting bikes that already didn't run from the factory (laughs) and like notoriously their instruction manuals would have torque specs like tighten until tight <laughs> yeah, Harley Davidson is the greatest motorcycle company in the world. Yeah, they make decent like a... bikes for a clothing company. 
Hey, don't, yeah, don't yeah. forget about their line of wine coolers. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the bowling version of a private equity firm, for fuck's sake. No, yeah. man, you gotta you have to like do machinist tolerant stuff for like bowling equipment, just like you do automotive stuff. Like honestly, if we're being tr- true, I bet the equipment for a bowling alley is more complicated than. A oh Harley. yeah, no, I'm sure. No, I'm sure of that. The um, Harley design has didn't change for like seventy years. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we've updated the heads, and now we're claiming it's a new motor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to just how the companies market and produce. You know, there's there's a lot of different variants there. And, like, you can understand one industry, but when it's, like, you don't understand these totally different industries. Like, you're not going to have that kind of knowledge. Yeah. Well, uh, so AMF, they made two different mopeds. Um, one had a Minarelli, uh, I think it was a V1 engine which is a pretty standard moped engine. Uh, they, they're pretty basic single speed piston port, uh, two stroke, uh, you know, decent, nothing special. Did you see the V one? Yeah. That's just the, the model number of the engine. Oh, okay. I, I thought you meant like, as opposed to V twin, I'm like, but if, it's, <laughs> if it's one line, that's, that's like an L or something. Like I don't, I don't that's an uppercase I motor. Yeah. <laughs> but then they also um, did the AMF Roadmaster, which has a McCullough chainsaw engine on it. And it's a friction drive on the rear wheel. So it's just a little um, like knurled steel peg that rubs on the outside of the tire. To drive I see no the problem end. here. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably the worst moped ever made and sold in the US if I had to pick one. I love the idea of a moped where I can do a burnout without the wheel moving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so I've got a Vespa Grande. Um, they're kind of terrible by today's standards. In fact, like if I, if someone's thinking about getting into mopeds from like the late seventies, early eighties, I would say, don't uh, just get a scooter or a real motorcycle instead. Like, or one of those, like, um, Chinese kits where you bolt a two-stroke engine to a bicycle, you know, those are probably almost better quality than the average moped from the seventies. Unless it's in like pristine shape, which none of them are really. But if you do want to get a moped, like, I don't know, you can get, well, I paid about 400 for mine, but that was years ago. I I think I've seen higher prices today uh, because, you know, weird hipsters want to have something old and cool looking, but you can, if you need to maintain them, like they make parts for them still, or you can buy new old stock. Uh, there's a couple of different companies that sell parts online. Um, uh, one's called Treatland, and one is called 1977 Mopeds. I think they're both in the Bay Area, but you know they ship to the all over the U.S. And then, but for scooters, you know there's all kinds of different ones out there. There's everything from the cheapest Chinese. 50 cc all the way up to you know 300 cc uh stuff that you you're probably going to pay ten thousand dollars or something for one of those so yeah like i would say pretty much any scooter built in um either japan taiwan or italy in the last 10 20 years is going to be decent quality may you might pay a little bit more for an italian bike 
or an Italian branded bike, I should say. Sometimes Vespa or Aprilia or whoever will build their stuff in like, you know, uh, Belarus or Thailand or some other country. But, uh, you know, I, Honda is probably the, the best bet. You know, I used to have a Honda Metropolitan, which was uh, a good bike. Uh, you can get a brand new one for like 2500 bucks if you want. You can get a used one for, I don't know, less than a thousand you know, there's also the Ruckus, which is the same bike underneath, but a little bit more aggressive styling, you know, if you want to be macho and everything. And pretty much any bike you can buy brand new for a, a scooter, at least, is going to be a liquid cooled four stroke fuel injected engine because of emissions. So, I mean, maintaining one of those, it's going to be a lot cheaper than a car. Uh, you've only got one cylinder and everything. And generally with a 50cc scooter you're not going to go over like maybe 40 miles an hour maybe 35 depending on how hilly your area is but um and then i guess if you wanted to get something a little bit older i would probably stick with something japanese also like two-stroke japanese uh, scooters from the 80s are pretty good i had a um, honda spree which is a 50 cc single um, and that was pretty good Scott, who I talked to, had a Yamaha Raz, which is basically the same thing. Uh, they're pretty basic. Um, you can pick those up for a few hundred bucks. I think, and if you wanted something a little bit cheaper, um, but a little bit more modern, I would go with anything from Taiwan. So PGO, um, Kimco, and um, they made two-stroke and four-stroke um, bikes that are that are pretty high quality. Um, if you're really on a budget, you can get uh, a Chinese scooter, but, you know, really look at it and go through it and make sure that it that it's in good shape or that you know how to fix it. Like they're pretty universal. A lot of them have um, what's called a GY6 engine, which is like a, a family of engines, which I think were developed in Taiwan um, based off of a Honda design. But they like all these different Chinese manufacturers have just used the same design for years. So it's kind of generic by now you can get parts that are interchanged between different brands and everything. The Chinese ones, the bodywork, the plastic bodywork is usually kind of cheap and shitty and will break on you. The electrics, all the electronics are pretty cheap. Like the um, voltage regulators tend to break and then uh, you'll blow the ignition module or the headlight or whatever. But the engines are pretty tough. Uh, they've got that pretty well figured out. And they're pretty cheap if you need to get a replacement engine. Yeah, I don't know. You can pick one of those up for... Well, I bought one non-running for like 200 bucks and sold it for three or 400 So, like, that kind of thing is not too hard to, to get into. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, if you want to get a brand new Vespa scooter, you can pay $4,000 for it. Um, but I don't know if it's worth Whoa, it. Whoa, is that what they is that what they cost? Yeah, so I just uh, looked it up on their website. The Primavera 50cc is uh, starts at four thousand MSRP. Ouch. Yeah, which considering the Honda Metropolitan is twenty five hundred, and you know looks basically the same, you know, very similar styling. You know, uh, I would probably just yeah, go with the Honda. That seems at that point. Yeah, that seems way more tolerable. I mean, because for, you know, yeah. for four grand, you can get 
fuck, you can get a 240 for that and go drift it. You can't drift your scooter. Literally the most expensive thing I've ever bought was my Cutlass. It was $4,500. Yeah. Unless you count my house, which shouldn't count because it's a house. Yeah. 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 Uh, I guess, I mean, so you can, you can get a, a cheap used car for less than it would be to buy a brand new scooter. Um, I do think it is, if you're, if you're in the situation where a scooter makes sense for your commute or whatever, uh, it is worth looking at because you're going to get, you know, 70 to a hundred miles per gallon, somewhere around there, depending Ooh, on what's real you get. good. That's real good. That's that was going to be one of the, here, but if you're in a place in life where getting a scooter makes sense for you, you should really spend that money figuring out why that makes <laughs> sense for you. Hold on. I'm thinking here. I'm the, there's lots I'm, of, of affordable therapists and medications. <laughs> um, well, and they're, they're also real convenient because you can basically park them anywhere. Um, you probably want to put like a chain through the wheel and lock it to something solid. Cause you know, someone will just pick it up and put it in the back of a pickup truck and drive away. But, um, you know, they're pretty well suited for commuting in a city or even, you know, in a rural area. Like, um, you know, we talked, uh, me and Scott talked a little bit about like how in a lot of third world countries, people get around on motorcycles that have pretty small engines. You know, um, I think in Thailand, they're real big. Uh, they're basically Honda Cub um, clones, uh, which are usually like, you know, between 50 and 100 cc's. I think the technical term is underbone motorcycle. I'm not sure who came up with that uh, nomenclature, but uh, the, some of my relatives lived in Uganda for a while, and and uh, they the local term for motorcycle is boda. And, oh, you've uh, gone to be kidding me! <laughs> and uh, the uh, there's some blog over there called Things on a Boda. I'll, I'll I'll see if I can find it and put the link in the description. But it's like. Um, just people hauling like giant crates full of chickens on the back of a motorcycle, you know, that's like, that's like every day in, in a lot of these countries, you know, where you can't, most people can't afford a a truck or a car or whatever. They just get around on a motorcycle and they make it work, you know? So they should come to America. We have very reasonable finance options. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking, you know, again, in a future where, you know, we have a, we constantly have an ecological crisis uh, the world over. But a lot of these countries that you would associate with like tons of scooters and mopeds on the streets and stuff are like these what, what people would consider poorer countries. But like, I feel like that culture kind of needs to come to the U.S. to a certain extent. I mean, where we're not, you know, we're not all relying on big 4,000 pound, you know, ridiculous machines to get around, which just suck up energy that you know for, for a lot of the time people don't need it like i like cars i like going to the track and stuff but like if i can get around with you know some more environmentally friendly way and also that you know it's just easy to get around with and doesn't require i don't know the kind of work and maintenance and whatever and the cost uh it's an attractive option you know it just Seems like one of those Please things hear it that Ford, hear what you're saying and offer you the F nine fifty. Yeah, I mean, even for EVs, I mean, there's again, we we keep saying we'll do a deep dive in that at some point, and I'm sure we will. But like, I don't know. I feel like um, 
part of the the solution might be small motorcycles, scooters, uh, moped type things, especially if we have communities where like you can get all your shit without having to drive everywhere, you know, like in, in a lot of those countries, you know, your, your local community has the shit that you need. So you might only have to ever go around, you know, uh, you know, a couple of miles or something. Whereas, especially if you get out into like suburbs and stuff, shit's just spread out. You're like, oh, I got to drive. How much of that stuff is cultural? Are you arguing that we should have some sort of like cultural revolution? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not not saying that. Maybe maybe take some slightly different, make some different choices than other cultural revolutions, but. Yes, essentially. Disagree. <laughs> Fuck those sparrows. <laughs> Let's maybe keep the fucking birds around. <laughs> the forge in my backyard where I smelt my own pig iron disagrees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, um, you know, I mentioned uh, the the Honda clones in... Um, Thailand and a lot of other Asian countries, you know, Vietnam, whatever. There's a couple places online where you can find videos of people drag racing those those uh, little small motorcycles in Thailand, and they're pretty nuts. Like, I I don't remember what times or miles per hour they're they're getting, but those things are pretty fucking fast. Like, they'll strip them down to you know basically just the frame, or they'll even just take this little motor and put it on a stretched out frame and uh go pretty damn fast like in fact like thailand has some some very strange drag racing culture going on there uh which is kind of cool like they do a lot of like don't they have the like drag racing boats and shit yeah they get like these like uh wooden river boats and they put like gigantic diesel engines on them (laughs) that are making like 400 horsepower and go like stupid fast on canals and rivers and dude if a diesel motor's making 400 horsepower it's probably making 2500 pound feet of torque (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's uh it's whipping up all kinds of horsepower but at like 800 rpms (laughs) (laughs) um they also do they also race um the I, i forget what they're called i think they're just called hand tractors um it's like it's like um like a rototiller basically um uh, that you that has like a little skateboard behind it that you stand on and then it has <laughs> handlebars to steer it and and it, they you know swap out the rototiller part with like drag slicks oh my and god and we'll race those things <laughs> do people get seriously hurt doing this oh yeah i'm sure to. all the time yeah, like I, I'm not that brave. I'll tell you, I I can do some shit, but I am not that brave. <laughs> yeah, there's one of those fuck Vice it, documentaries. Sorry, what? <laughs> I said, fuck it, I'm trying to die today. <laughs> <laughs> there's one of those uh, those Vice documentaries where they went and hung out with the uh, motorcycle street racers in Thailand, and uh, a bunch of those guys had like some pretty gnarly scars all over them. So. Yeah, they, they, they've crashed a few times, I think. Years ago, I had a buddy that had a Vespa built for drag racing. He said it topped out at about 85, which on a Vespa sounds horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know uh, Scott mentioned his friend that's trying to uh, build a land speed record Vespa. I forget how fast they were shooting for, but uh, that sounds pretty terrifying, too. But uh, Brandon, you had something else you're going to say? I, f- I forgot. 
Yes. Uh, how much do you know about moped clubs? A little bit. I I hung out a couple times with the local one in Denver called Black Black. I don't think they're still around. But okay, I, bought... I, guess, I guess my bigger question is, out where you're at, are they just like this psychopathic degenerate party animals? Yes. Oh, I love moped clubs everywhere then. <laughs> there were there were moped clubs in Philly and they were just the wildest shit, dude. They were going to an event in Richmond and they all just threw their mopeds on top of an RV, RV threw a net over it, piled into the RV and drove down. Like I think they were like losing bikes on the way down and shit. Because <laughs> they like those dudes love drinking and hard drugs. They were great. Yeah. I I mean motors or moped clubs are you know, for people that are too poor to afford to get into a motorcycle club, but they're, they're basically the same thing. Well, I don't know. Maybe they're not like, you know, uh, transporting, uh, drugs and prostitutes across state lines, like, uh, you know, the hell's angels would, but, uh, you know, they, they have fun just as much as the other guys do. No, dude, the, like the, the folks I knew it was, it was pretty, it pretty much seemed like egalitarian degeneracy. Yes. That's a good way is, to describe it. That might be my new favorite phrase <laughs> egalitarian degeneracy it's it's probably peak subculture like the only reason in my life i've ever actually wanted a moped was an excuse to hang out with those folks yeah they're they're an interesting bunch the uh the place where i bought my moped from i th- i don't know if it's still around it was called the shred shed and it was a combination <laughs> um moped repair place and skate indoor skate park so they had, you know, the mopeds on one side and a couple half pipes on the other. And I went to a party there once where they had an entire uh, roasted goat. <laughs> okay. And a couple kegs and like some couple dudes just rapping on a sound system in one corner. Dude, this, okay, they're the same everywhere then. Yes. I love yes. hearing that. <laughs> I love it. The, the, the only dude in Philly that I was like, like actually kind of friends with that was in one of those clubs, he reminded me of, I forget the character's name, but in True Romance, Gary Oldman's character that was like the white dude with dreads and like facial scars and all that shit. It, he looked like him, but with less teeth. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, those dudes are, okay, I just needed like, I needed to know if that was like a Philly and like East Coast thing or if that was like nationwide. And it warms my heart to hear that that's nationwide. Yeah, <laughs> I think I want to say the a lot of the guys in the Denver club came out of like Baltimore or somewhere. Oh, on the East yeah, Coast. yeah. So um, I, I think all up and down like the I-95 corridor, like that was all the folks I knew about. I, I didn't even know a lot of them. I just knew of them. Um they were all like, yeah, like uh, uh, Richmond, Baltimore, Philly, maybe maybe some like New York folks. I don't really know, but yeah, I I yeah. know there's a uh, a moped club in like the Twin Cities in in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I, okay. I think that's where they're from, called the Casa Rollers, which I think is a fun name. <laughs> Similar note, there's a bicycle club in Las Vegas called Hammer and Cycle. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> nice. God, I don't nice. know any of them. I just saw their back patches one time when I was rolling through town. But yeah, if you there's a website called mopedarmy.com and um, there's a pretty good wiki that has information on mopeds and moped clubs if you want to get involved with that. Um, and then also they have a, a forums for 
people to post their weird builds where they, you know, put a snowblower, snowblower engine on a moped for no good reason. Or yeah, if you want to be in a moped club, they have pretty strict rules, though. I mean, you have to have a moped and a drinking problem. <laughs> yes, I'm halfway there. And and like a denim vest with a bunch of patches on. Oh, it. dude, I'm two thirds of the way there. I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> exactly. You want to get mopeds and, and we can we can all. Hey, Brian, are you willing to like, like really let yourself go? <laughs> uh, I'll think about it. Like, I'm... I don't. I've never known someone in a moped club that looked like they had showered recently. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm three quarters of the way here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can't really grow my hair or beard long and and have it. Well, I guess look if I just want to look scruffy and degenerate, then you know, I'll just yeah, do that's that. like yeah, okay. If your beard so doesn't mind. grow in well and like you're going bald or something, uh, and you just let it grow out, that looks even weirder. And then you you, you you're perfect. <laughs> yeah, then get the right. skullet. Yeah, I think this is a this is my path to success and and good things in my life. Uh, Brian, I'm, I'm going to need you to sell me a moped now. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll sell you mine. I don't really want it, to be honest. <laughs> I need to get into the moped club life. This sounds like my jam for sure. Yeah. I don't think there's anything like that locally. And if I'm wrong, then I hope that I find them and buy a moped. <laughs> See, the problem with the moped is that you can still get a DUI on one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I heard about someone getting a DUI on a bicycle, so it can happen. Yeah, you can get DUI on a horse, on a riding lawnmower. Like a cop hassled me one time on a longboard because I had a drink in my hand, and he said he could give me a DUI. I was like, "You fucking won't, though." And he's like, ah, <laughs> I won't, but I could. And I was like, "Yeah, okay, then leave me alone." Zach, I do think less of you knowing you owned a longboard. Oh, I own several. <laughs> All right, guys, I'll see you later. Um, <laughs> that's that's it. That's where you draw the line. I mean, I was pretty iffy on on talking to an Audi guy, but hey, man, now you're a Sector 9 guy, too, and I'm like, hmm. Oh, Sector 9 is weak, man. You got to go with Loaded. That's where it's at. You're not helping your case for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> How can I make it worse? Hold on. Um, I, did, I, I don't did know, I don't know what Loaded is, just... The fact that the one thing that I did know about longboards, you were like, nah, that ain't real shit. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, because it's all stupid. Hey, man, they're fun, and it's like a skateboard, but that you can actually commute on. So I don't want to hear it. No, like, just to give you an idea of where I'm at as a person, me and two of the dudes from my van club went to a car show today because we, like, we could all agree that we wanted to go check out, like, cool old cars and then shit on them for not being exactly what we would want to do. <laughs> So, like, we're just, like, rolling through and, like, mocking, like, pristine 68 Camaros. And, like, there was, like, a super bird that had, like, 800 original miles on it. And we're, like, don't even drive the fucking thing. <laughs> like, if there weren't chips in the paint, we just shit all over it. So, that's who I am as a person. If I like it, it's still not safe. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. mean, that's, that's what makes life worth living is just shitting on stuff with your friends. That's like there what we do here. That's yeah. <laughs> there, there was a, there was like, I think it was like an Impala station wagon that was like full low rider on hydraulics, like Cholo airbrush, like uh, murals all over it. Didn't have a bad word to say about it. Don't care if it ever sees the road. It was perfect. Nice. Yeah. 
sick. Yeah, that does sound cool. Yeah, I love it. I want one so bad. <laughs> one day you guys will see me rolling down the road on three wheels. <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned this in the interview with Scott, but I think I would, if you're at all an environmentalist, uh, I would probably stay away from any of the old two strokes uh, because I, I think I figured it out once I, I did a little research and found that the average 50 cc moped puts out about 30 times the harmful emissions uh, that a regular modern car does per mile. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. I wanted to ask you about that. It's kind of burying the lead here. Um, yeah, that's a big deal. That's like, woof. How, how is that even possible? Well, so with it's a two stroke engine. Yeah. So with a two stroke engine, you well, got my a... car. OK, my car was burning oil. Let's be <laughs> serious here. I mean, yeah, but that's, come on. that's not a part of the design. Uh, you know, no, because every car, you know, once you get to 100, 150 miles, 1,000 miles, like there's a lot of cars burning oil. Hondas literally start at like 50,000. Like, and mopeds literally start at one. So, so burning oil, really bad, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, with a two stroke engine, generally, at least with the older ones, you're, you're mixing oil in with the gasoline. Yeah. There were some of them that had, a little automatic pump that would put the oil in uh, the intake by itself, but still that's going to burn up anyways. And the the other thing with two stroke engines is you don't have any valves in the head. Um, All the, I guess, valving is done by ports in in the side of the cylinder that are Mm -hmm. uncovered by the uh, piston as it moves. So there's a point where the, well, it's not the intake, it's the transfer port where the fresh mixture is coming in and the exhaust is going out and there's overlap between that. So you can basically just shoot a bunch of raw unburned gasoline out the exhaust. And that happens pretty often depending on what RPM you're at. Well, listen, every vehicle I own has a carburetor. So I promise you I'm still doing that. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, anything built in the seventies is going to, be a carburetor and points ignition. It's not going to be high tech by any means. Like your average, you know, two stroke moped engine has like three moving parts. Uh, you know, maybe four, if you include the, the carburetor slide or whatever. Yeah. They're very basic machines and they're, they're not, they're not up to modern standards, which, you know, like I said, the, the, any scooter that you can buy today is going to have like a catalytic converter and fuel injection. It's going to be pretty clean. Okay. Fuck but, that. Reject modernity. Embrace tradition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to go real clean, the the real way to go is electric. Uh, yeah, but even I Harleys have catalytic converters now. I heard. What's that? Even Harley's have cats now. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I don't know if there's any motorcycles that have carburetors anymore. I mean, it's pretty much mine. Well, I mean, that are made brand new. Yeah. No, I think you're right. But uh, yeah. I mean, I I don't know hardly. You know, I don't know. I. I almost wonder with um, just because if you're on something that uses so little actual like gas, I'm wondering if it almost is better to be gas rather than electric at that point, because we know, you know, with EVs, there's a lot of environmental problems that come from producing those as well and the power and all that. I'm wondering if there is like this point at which like at first, like very small engine scooters might be better uh, and up to what point, I don't know, but. Uh, I wonder if like they might be potentially better than even small electric scooters. 
Maybe it would not. depend heavily on how the power is being generated. So if you were living near like solar farms, wind farms, hydroelectric, then no. But, uh, you know, if, if, if you're making the electricity using a coal power plant, then yeah, probably. I mean, I, I also don't like I, I, I find a lot of like, oh, if you're living near a coal plant, you're like, oh, you know, at some point that's got to change. But coal is getting like super unprofitable. So like. They don't have to ban that shit. That shit's going away. But, you know, at some point we, we do want more re- renewable, you know, clean energy anyway. So, like, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe now it's not as good. But hopefully in the, if we actually build that infrastructure, which we won't. But, you know, we could dream um, if we did, it would be in theory cleaner, I guess. Probably. Like you said, Connor, we haven't really ran the numbers on this. I think I want to say um, that that. Uh, YouTube channel engineering explained he ran the numbers on like a Tesla versus um, some equivalent gasoline powered car. And even if you are going with a coal power plant, it is less uh, harmful emissions. Um, But then you have to factor in like the lithium mining for the batteries and all that kind of stuff. So like, which I think is bad. I think Truthfully, though, I feel like there's kind of a hierarchy and like climate change is currently the worst issue. Yeah. Uh, lithium mining seems bad, but like I don't think it's going to burn the planet just yet. I mean, it's bad, but like I think it might be less bad. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Send us an email if, if I'm wrong or something. Um, I, I would say it kind of depends because a lot of mining is really bad for water sources and it's not exactly yes. like we're abundant with water right now. Yeah, and it's not like capitalists who do the mining give a shit about what they contaminate. So, yeah, you're right. Right. And, like, yeah, like I said, I don't know a whole lot about electric vehicles. I do know that there are a few uh, electric scooters and uh, motorcycles out there. Do you know, like, what a, what a, I'm sorry to derail this, but, like, what what a halfway decent, like, electric scooter might go for? Like, for someone, if, like, you're living in a city and really that's all you need to get around, like, yeah, I don't remember exactly. I th- I think they're they're a little bit more than the equivalent gas model, but not by a okay. whole lot. Like maybe add another five hundred, a thousand dollars, or something like that. Um, but how many know, AAA batteries do they run on? <laughs> well, that reminds me. There was uh, I'll see if I can find the link and put it in the description. But there was um, I think it was Yamaha and Vespa are working on a standardized uh, battery pack for electric motorcycles and the idea is that you can just pull it out and put it in a charging station and get a new one kind of like when you go to the grocery store and get a get a propane tank for your grill or whatever see that's the beauty of standardization i i know what you're talking about yeah that kind of stuff is really i'm like that's that's the way to go not proprietary bullshit like right like standardization that's i feel like that's that's the kind of goal for socialism is like standard shit not proprietary crap. Yeah. And I've been meaning to get into electric bicycles. I kind of want to convert my bike to electric some way or another. And you can do that for, I don't know, less than maybe 500 to 1,000, depending on how many batteries and how powerful a motor you want to get. Uh, I'm sure you could spend as much money as you want, mm-hmm. you know, putting the the most high-tech motor on there or whatever, or the, the biggest battery pack. But... Uh, that that's kind of cool. Like you can, like I was just at the bike shop the other day and you can buy a brand new, you know, purpose built electric bicycle. That's maybe 200 Watts. So that's like, I don't know, 
uh, like a third of a horsepower or something like that for, uh, mm-hmm. I think around 2000 2500 bucks. So, I mean, I, I see a lot of like older folks, especially riding these electric bicycles on the trails because, you know, maybe they, they don't have the, the knees capable of getting up the hills anymore and they want something that's nice and comfortable. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, I, that's a real attractive thing for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that can be practical for getting around town too. The, the, re- the reason I would want to put an electric motor on a bike is uh, for range mostly. You know, I get tired after riding for an hour, but I'd kind of like to be able to go all over town. And um, Have you considered being in better shape? <laughs> I'm yes. working on it. <laughs> I feel like that's probably the better option. Yeah, that's not going to work, though, if I'm going to be in a moped gang. I got to get in the worst shape possible, right? <laughs> a different kind of worst shape. Like, okay. Like, you need liver problems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, infected track marks and shit. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I don't want to discourage those guys. I don't know what they're all about. They have a good time. You use heroin. I'm not going to judge you. But maybe stop doing heroin. Yeah, I think we can say pretty definitively, heroin, not the greatest thing in the world. Not the greatest, but, you know, you could probably, if you use it in moderation, I feel like it's, (laughs) it can be okay, as long as you don't get the addicted part. Dude, the people that do heroin seem to love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, I think that's about all I have about mopeds and scooters. I don't know if, if we had anything else to talk about here in this segment. Brian, I'm sorry I'm so effective at derailing your conversation. No, no, it's good. I think we covered it all. Yeah, I think I think this is a this is a dead horse that we've been beating. <laughs> Effectively, I might add. And uh, just if we have any moped club listeners out there, uh, let me let me know where you're at. I'll bring the beer and just let's let's get shit faced and run into something. Hell yeah! All right. Yeah. Speaking of, they can reach out to us on you know Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, which we don't post on enough, but you know that's another issue. And uh, what were some of the other ones? Ch- uh, Hexbear, and we're on we're on old Reddit, by the way, not yeah. new Reddit. If I'm understanding correctly, uh, I just yeah. used the old. I think I probably pasted the old Reddit link in there because that's what I do out of reflex. Because the new, like that, just defaults it to the old design. Like the the new Reddit design is like optimized for mobile, and it sucks, and I hate it. See, that's funny because I only I do I try and do everything on my phone. So like I use the new Reddit. I don't think I can find us on the new Reddit. I think like they're totally separate things. So huh. I may have to look into that. I, hey, maybe hey, I'm just an idiot. I don't use Reddit that much. Yo, since we're doing our socials, I also want to shout out my buddy Alan, who does the Hot Rod Hippie uh, YouTube channel. He oh, yeah. does like some build videos, uh, tour reviews. He puts in a lot of effort and does like really quality uh, videos. So if you're listening to us, you might dig him. Uh, he doesn't get too political, but uh, he is a good dude who is one of us. So check him out. And wait, what? And what does he work on? Vans or? Oh no, no, he uh, he does a lot of tool reviews and stuff. But like, he's been working on a Slam C10 pickup that is his dad's, and hmm. uh, he'll do like shop tours and whatnot. He he builds. Uh, he used to work for a handful of different places that did some pretty wild like custom builds, like. I don't think he himself worked on it, but uh, one of his old shops did like a Riddler build a handful of years ago. And uh, he's, he's done some pretty wild like resto mod and like, I don't know, I guess you'd call it like pro touring sort of stuff. Um, 
Oh, cool he doesn't get into then. a lot of that in his, a lot of his videos, but um, he does a lot of fabrication tips and stuff too. So, you know, a little bit of everything. Check him out. That's that's the hot rod hippie. Yeah, and what was that? Um, the the video that you sent me that was like um, he was reviewing someone else's car. I think it was a uh, like a Volkswagen Beetle with a V8 swap or something like that. Some kind of small car with a V8 swap. I think. I can't remember. I think that was uh uh. I, not a Fiat. What's the other tiny little British car? A Mini? The Mini? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe oh, that's was, right. Yeah. I think it was a yeah, Mini. Somebody yeah. did like a full cage and like hopped up a Mini. He's, he said that he barely fit in it and it re, like it really was like hopped up. He also did a video where a dude has like, he, he swapped, he converted an LS to a carburetor. And, but like, I'm real. Like that was a real undersell. It is a thousand horsepower, naturally aspirated, carbureted LF. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, it's it's like a NASCAR truck sort of thing or something. Like I don't remember, but it, it's that thing just screams. That's one of the cooler things I think. I personally think he's covered. Yeah, I, think he, I mean, he's got a lot of good stuff about like uh, fabrication techniques too. You know how to like uh, braze metal or or TIG weld or whatever. Yeah, he's out in Philly now, so I'm actually trying to, to coordinate with him and my buddy who's got my 65 uh, Pro Street Van um, to have him come out and help with some of the fabrication work, have him like bead roll some stuff for me if he's willing to, because I got to do all new tubs and rear floor after we get the frame finished up. Cool. Yep. Oh, and uh, I don't know if this will, when this episode will go out, but I might put this in whatever is coming out uh, soon enough. Um, but I'm doing this uh, contest called the Playlist Challenge uh, where people make playlists on um, Spotify and then it goes into a bracket and people vote on which one is best. So um, I uh, that should be... Yeah, so go and vote for, for mine. It, I'll put the link in there. Um, it's uh, If you just go to theplaylistchallenge.com, click on Current Challenge, if you see my name on there, please vote for mine or, or even just listen to it. You know, um, I think it's a cool playlist. Um, it's called custom van jams. So it was partly inspired by Brandon and, and your, uh, your vans and everything. So it's a lot of, um, like Australian psychedelic rock and, um, American doom metal and stoner metal. Okay. Uh, we'll throw Finn Lizzie on there too. Uh, well too late. I already submitted it. Okay. But uh, <laughs> next time, my eight track player in my van doesn't work, but I do keep a thin Lizzie eight track in it just for effect. Yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's all we got. Um, yeah, I'm sick of talking to you guys. <laughs> all right, and uh, we're sick. Yeah. We're sick of talking to to you, listener. So, so yeah. So yeah, go find that. Some- go fuck yourself <laughs> yeah just you know go follow uh, our social media and stuff and then uh you know fuck off this is the end <laughs> and if you want to give us money we'll, we'll figure out a way to do that yeah so so far no one has uh, offered but uh you know <laughs> you never know <laughs> oh and if you work for Wyan, send me a supercharger yeah please i want one preferred if-, if it's stolen actually if you can if you can like boost it from work Please. No, we prefer that. Would that. Be great. I will accept like a, a promotional thing from the company itself. But if you just work there and steal me one, yeah, that's better. Well, I don't know if they're going to want to promote 
promote us now if we're talking about stealing from their company. But. <laughs> they weren't going to promote us but to start with. But. <laughs> I don't appreciate you guys. send me one, I'm just going to have to give them money. So, like, I just, just, just do it. Just steal one and give it to me. Yeah. And if you work for uh, Y&Utani, uh, give me a spaceship. Yo, actually, yeah, now that I think about it, it doesn't have to be Y and, like, Pro Charger or, or like, anybody, man. You can just send me an old Detroit Diesel one. I'll rebuild it. There you go. Yeah. Get on it. All right, I'm out. All right. Good night, guys. All right. Uh-huh. Adios. We gon' make you fight fire with fire fists. We make you fight fire with water fists. We gon' fight riches and not riches, but we gon' fight the solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. <laughs>